Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everybody. How are you doing? How are you, Bill Real? Well, RFM, <laughs> I'll tell you this much. I think we proved that uh, Joseph Smith was the originator of polygamy. Well, I wanted to follow up with you on that. But first off, for our audience and those who may not have been with us last week at this time, to <laughs> what are you referring, my friend? We, uh, two weeks ago, we were given uh, a caller that didn't believe in Joseph Smith being the originator of polygamy. And uh, I took that as a challenge. And so over the next week, we put an episode together. And uh, sorry, I got like a gnat flying around in here. If I kill him, I could bring him back to life by giving him a priesthood blessing. But uh, yeah, be careful. it could be episode. Vincent Price. Yeah, we ended up doing an episode last week where we put up, I think, the greatest of historical documents contemporane contemporaneous to Joseph Smith's uh, being alive there at the end and showing that he was, in fact... The mastermind behind Section 132, the practice of plural marriage, and uh, I'll use my favorite word, uh, we demonstrably showed that Joseph Smith is also the author of all the unhealthy behavior uh, towards these women in Nauvoo. It certainly seems that way to me. But can you tell our audience what's been going on since then? Because I understand that that episode has caused a bit of a ripple throughout the uh, blogger knackle. Yeah, so in, uh, for instance, the Facebook group Hemlock Knots, hmm. I don't know what that's about. Um, you don't know what that means? I have no idea. Tell me. Well, it's based on a saying by uh, Joseph Smith, talking about how hard it is to get new doctrines and new ideas into the heads of these, these chuckle-headed Latter-day Saints. Mm, Remember, like it's like uh, taking a wedge to a pumpkin or something to a Hemlock Knot. I presume that that's where... It's coming from. I'm sure it is. So in these groups that are polygamy deniers, uh, they are battling back and forth, trying to, I guess, come up with explanations for the things that we showed last week. And I really thought we tied together super well, the Nauvoo High Council, Section 132, and the Nauvoo City Council minutes and what those three things mean, plus the land deeds and the affidavits from Leonard Sobey and uh, lots of other cool people. But uh, essentially there's now we've laid out the argument and we welcome somebody coming on and discussing their side, if they'll be willing to handle, I think, logical, rational questions about how they deal with the evidence we presented. And so are they lining up around the block to come on the show? Sometimes they say they will, and then they sort of back out. And so I'm still waiting for somebody to want to sit down with us for a few hours and let us ask four or five, I think, really good questions and see how they reconcile that. But anyway, we've got we've got a great scholar on tonight. Is that? Oh, yes, we do, don't we? <laughs> I thought you were talking about me for a second. Well, I, mean, I was, My hubris but there's got also the another one, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's this other guy that you're talking about. Is that Dan Vogel? Can we bring the Dan Vogel guy. on, the scholar <laughs> of all scholars? Yes. Oh, goodness. 
<laughs> anyway, go ahead Has with tonight, left? my friend. It's enough of Hemlock Nuts. Yes, yes. <laughs> Not to be confused with Hemlock Nuts. Yeah, that too, yes. <laughs> I don't mean any disrespect. I don't, I, I don't think to, I've ever watched nuts, it. Yes. So I don't know anything about them, except I understand that they're very, on the other side of this Joseph Smith practicing polygamy thing. So I don't mean to be disrespectful. I was just making a play on words is all. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you're, I, I really would love for one of those folks to come on and have this conversation. It, I think it deserves their rebutting sort of the evidence we put up and see if that holds up to our audience and their logic and rational thinking. Yeah, I think so too. I think it'd be very interesting because all that totally. we're in it for is just to try and get as close as we can to the truth of what happened. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely, my friend. All right. Well, apparently, uh, we're getting word from Maven, who is behind the scenes tonight, uh, that someone is talking about a fellow named Jer Jeremy Hoop has offered to come on the show about polygamy. And I, I don't know it. who Jeremy Hoop is, but when I hear the yeah. last name, I think of Hooper from the movie Jaws. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that movie. Hooper! Hooper! <laughs> uh, no, I've never, I've seen Jaws. I don't remember that line though, but if you watch it again, you'll get it. People would expect that with me. <laughs> well, let's get Dan on here. Let's do it. Can we get Dan on? Dan, how are you doing? <laughs> here I am. <laughs> it's so That was a great show last week, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Praise from Caesar. And here oh, you are riding high. You have just completed your I don't know if this is a magnum opus or if every book you do is a freaking magnum opus, but this is the magnum opus of right now. And I know we've got actually a slide. We have a slide that uh, shows the same book, but I just want to tell yeah. you. Can I tell you we something? Do. I have not read the entire book yet. I don't okay? blame you. <laughs> I have not read the entire book, but I've got to tell you something. Uh -oh. I have done a lot so, of reading. See, you're getting punished for not reading it. Okay. I'll accept my punishment. I deserve it. But we, we all got punished. I want to tell you something. You are a good writer. Oh, thanks. How many people have talked to you about your ability to write? You? Just me? Because, <laughs> you know, you're a great historian, but you're also an excellent writer. Thank and you. I'm just saying, you know, there are great historians and there are great writers, but rarely do those two gifts come in the form of one person. Like right. they have with you. Well, Campbell. you know, uh, after 35 years, you think I'd get a, a little bit better. <laughs> Some people do. Some people don't. And I'm glad <laughs> that you are so one. good. This is a fantastic book. By the way, before we start, well, we've already started. Can you tell our audience? I'll tell them that the name of the, the book is Charisma Under Pressure. And it's Joseph Smith, American Prophet, 1831 to 1839. So that's covering the Ohio and Missouri years. Of early Mormonism, correct? Yes. It's like two books in one. Because of Ohio and Missouri? <laughs> yeah. The Ohio one is like the regular size of a book. Plus, you get Missouri as a bonus. Well, it's amazing. I mean, this is, <laughs> it approaches in totality a thousand pages. Well, 850, somewhere around there is the text. Right. Well, I was counting everything. Yeah. The, the index is about 50 pages, I think. I wasn't sure if you wrote this or if Stephen King wrote it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but right. it's an amazing book. Where can people buy it? Now, I understand it goes for like 50 bucks. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's pretty reasonable, I think. And it's 
got really good binding and uh, it will last and um chock full of information you know i want to get to some of that information tonight because the task i set you was to come up with a list of things that you found perhaps the most interesting that you discovered or that are covered in your book yeah and i'm already getting ahead of us in the slides so if we can start with the slides the first one yeah. that there's the most important well, slide we'll there, be showing tonight there you are yeah Okay, here's the second most. The second whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, you were trying to get us caught up. Yeah, there's the picture. I thought I was seeing my life pass before my eyes. So there's Charisma Under Pressure by Dan Vogel. Yeah. And if we can go ahead now, thank you. Yes. Now, here are a number of things that you put together that are covered in your book. And you started well, it with the question Did you know? Yeah. This could almost be like Ripley's Believe It or yeah. Not. Yeah. Uh, did you know? Here's some of the things like, did you know just Smith's original plan was to build the New Jerusalem and its temple in Indian territory? Can I answer that question? Not not in Independence, Missouri, but all the way into Indian territory. But things got, you know, backfired on them and they had to change plans. I had no say, idea. My answer to that question is no, I did not know that. I knew that uh, what I knew, what I thought I knew was that the plan was to have Zion established down in Jackson County over in the land, like bordering the Lamanites. That's what, it, that's what the revelation says now. You, you mean that's not what it said originally? No, it said among the Lamanites and they changed that to on the border by the Lamanites. Oh, my word. I had no idea. You see, this is why you are the uh, preeminent historian. You know incredible things and things that are different from what I learned and I thought were accurate. So what happened? Is is this tied in with the story then about yeah. how they sent missionaries among the yeah. uh, Native Americans and the was the Indian agents kicked them out? That's exactly it. And so uh, that was the revelation that called Oliver Cowdery to Lamanite mission said that that it shall be among the Lamanites. Zion would be among the Lamanites. So, uh, or the city, the, the whatever. I don't know the exact wording in my mind right now, but um, yeah, they got thrown out by the Indian agent, and uh, they they snuck over there a couple of times. But uh, they luckily there was no exact location named, and until they had to call for Joseph Smith to come and point out the place of where Zion was going to be. Okay. So, um, you know, Joseph Smith couldn't do it from uh, Ohio, apparently, with his gift of prophecy and seership. He had to actually go there, look around, choose some land, and point out the place. He had to be there in person. And, and uh, even then, Bishop Partridge uh, said that, he thought the land wasn't all that great that he that was chosen. Then then he and uh, Joe Smith got in some furious uh, argument. <laughs> and by the way, that is the context for the famous and somewhat misused revelation that contains the phrase "one mighty and strong," isn't it? No, you tell me. Oh yeah, because Joseph Smith has had it with Bishop Partridge, and Joseph Smith is telling him that if you don't 
do things the way I'm telling you to do them, then one mighty and strong is going to come down there to Missouri and set things in order. Oh, okay. And of course, that expression has been used ever since to, I don't know, identify the latest Messiah of the month. Yeah. In Mormonism. Even though historically speaking, it, it involves a very certain time and place in the 1830s. And it's self-referential. The one mighty and strong was going to be Joseph Smith. That's how I read it. Yeah. I think that's a straightforward read. I don't think he would let anybody else uh, take his place. No, Joseph Smith isn't calling anybody right. else the one mighty and strong. Right. What's this so, next one you have? The next one. Uh, did you know? Yes. What? <laughs> w.W. Phelps's article, Free People of Color, which led to the riot and destruction of the Mormon press, was apparently a bluff that backfired. No, all I'm familiar with is the idea that there was an article published down in Missouri called free, and it took me forever to realize that the word free is actually a verb here. It's not an adjective. In other words, it's an exhortation to free people of color, or in other words, the slaves, right? Well, no, it's an adjective. Is it really? Uh, it's describing free blacks from the north versus uh, slave enslaved blacks from the south. And so the Mormons wanted Independence Missourians in Jackson County to themselves. And they wanted all the Gentiles who wouldn't convert to get out. So uh, the Free People of Color was, was an article in the Evening and Morning Star that uh, was giving instructions on how to bring free blacks into Jackson County and telling them the proper route to take and the proper papers to have. And, and the people of Jackson County didn't want free blacks mixing with enslaved blacks in the same county. And uh, so my interpretation of that was, since there aren't any black Mormons really, except maybe Elijah Abel later, um, there, there, there are no black Mormons that are going to be migrating to Jackson County. There isn't any. Right. Okay. So why is all these instructions appearing in the newspaper as if they're going to be coming into the county? Well, I believe W.W. W. Phelps was trying to say to make it inhospitable for uh, Jackson Countyans to stay there. They, he wanted them to say, oh, if they're bringing free blacks in and it's going to corrupt our enslaved blacks, we're out of here. There right. goes the neighborhood. Right. Well, so it didn't it didn't work. They didn't scare off so easily. They fought. They fought back. Mm. And, you know, you, I'm going to have to check my history, my U.S. history. But um, I'll ask you the question, since you're the expert here. <laughs> um, wouldn't there have been a pro if they had actually done this? Now, I understand you're saying it was a bluff that backfired, so there's no intention yeah. of doing it. But even if they had, wouldn't there have been a danger of any free black from the north going into a slave state? Uh, well, you know, Missouri was kind of a neutral state to begin with, but, uh, at this time, um, well, not necessarily if they were accompanied, you know, and had the proper papers and stuff. And that was what, that was why W.W. W. Phelps was explaining how free blacks could come into the county in a safe way. Mm. Okay. Okay. No, 
So I didn't know any of that. And what I did know was wrong, apparently. But there weren't any. No, no, <laughs> no free people of color coming from the north. In our church. Or and then in the church either. In, in the Mormon <laughs> church. <laughs> What's the See, next I'm thing still you stuck have? in the mode. But the next one is uh, Joseph Smith. Did you know Joseph Smith's effort to redeem Zion did not end with the failure of Zion's camp? Well, no, I did not. In 1834. Now, what, yes, 1834. It was a huge um, failure on the part of Joseph yeah. Smith. My understanding is that uh, by revelation, God said, you go, you take it back. I will fight your battles. I will go before you. I will smite those Gentiles. And it ended up being sort of given up once they got down there to Missouri. And they sort of folded yeah, when well, they saw the opposing forces. Well, they didn't get the help that they thought they were going to get from the Missouri governor. And the, so the, the Missouri governor said he would uh, help bring the uh, Mormons back to Jackson County and reclaim their property, but they couldn't keep a standing army there. The, the governor said he didn't have authority to do that. So that was what Zion's camp was supposed to do, is to be the standing army to, to be able to, to maintain the, their property rights um, when the, the uh, state militia left. I see. But there was no but, state militia ready to help them uh, out. They, they, the governor wouldn't even help them get back to their property. And so it would have been a bloodbath, first of all. But And some Mormons, when uh, some of the people that went all that distance, 900 miles, they uh, were upset that they didn't fight. <laughs> they, they, they still they were still wanted to fight. But, so it, but it didn't end there. They went back to Kirtland, Ohio, and uh, they made plans. Joe Smith had explained the failure, okay, and they made plans to retake, to, to raise a larger audience, uh, or army, excuse me, to raise a larger army of like 500 instead of two, 205, and um, more money, and they, Joe Smith couldn't get either, actually, and it kind of fizzled out. We're going to learn a little bit about some of those steps. But uh, the next, did you know, leads us a little closer to uh, what we're talking about. There was, did you know, there was a second attempt to raise funds and recruits a large, or recruit a large army to take Zion by 11th of September, 1836, that failed to get off the ground. I had okay. no idea about any of this. Hey, Bill, so why I know you're being really quiet down there. I don't want to completely <laughs> ignore you. Had you heard about that? Um, no, I had not. So, um, But none of that surprises me. I expect Dan Vogel, anytime he does something, uh, for us to learn some new things. So, Thanks. <laughs> so... Yeah, why September 11th? We'll learn why September 11th is so significant, and not just to us today. <laughs> or um, to, um, I don't know, the Fancher party? <laughs> is that a significant date in that? September 11th, 1857. Really? Wow. Yeah, Mountain September Meadows 11th, Massacre. Yeah. Mountain Meadows and then September Synchronicity. 11th. Synchronicity. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes, it was a one in three hundred and sixty-five chance. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, did you know Oliver Cowdery had ambitions to replace Joseph Smith as leader of the church? This one no, surprised me more. None at all. Outside of our phone calls, Dan. <laughs> Not at all, because I just thought um, Oliver Cowdery. He's the second elder in the church. He was the second banana. And then he didn't like the way things were going in Missouri. He didn't like the way things were going out in the hayloft of the barn. And so he split ways with Joseph Smith and was excommunicated in 1838. Correct? Yeah. yeah. That's all I know. But you're saying he actually had ambitions to replace Joseph Smith as the well, leader so of the church? He was second elder uh, until... December 5th, 1834, when he was ordained as assistant president or co-president of the church, suddenly, uh, after all that time. And then he he writes in Joseph Smith's large journal that uh, they his ordination was delayed. It, it was actually spoken of by the angel that ordained Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery to this lesser priesthood, you know, supposedly in May 1829. And that, that it was delayed because he was busy uh, with the printing down in uh, Zion and stuff. But if you trace his, the steps, the Joseph Smith and Albert Cowdery were together plenty of times to perform such an ordination. So it's a very suspicious ex explanation. And, uh, kind of anachronistic for the 1829 time period in the first place. And to believe that the angel had mentioned the uh, co-president of the church back in 1829, and it took all those years to actually ordain him to that office is not really credible. And um, because there's so many other, there was, first of all, there was no president of the high priesthood you know, until 1831, and it wasn't mentioned anyway. And there were no counselors until 1832. And so to for them to know about the president and uh, co-president in 1829 is not really a, cre a credible claim. And anyway, so Oliver Cowdery, he gets uh, promoted all of a sudden over Sidney Rigdon. Um, but then uh, when Oliver, so he's co-president. When he, Oliver Cowdery starts revealing that Joseph Smith had this affair with Fanny Alger, that would have been meant that the Joseph Smith could have been tried by the Bishop's court at that time. And Oliver Cowdery would have been president. Oh, oh, Okay, so are you saying that you think that that was just a, a happy coincidence for Oliver and his ambitions, or do you think he might have made anything up in order to try and no, get Joseph no, Smith out of the yeah, way? No, no, yeah, it was a happy coincidence. It was something okay. that came his way, and there, there is other clues that he, that Joseph Smith, um, worried about Oliver Cowdery's ambitions, uh, that there were two evils in him, and, uh. I have another source that you can read in the book. I'll save that for those people that read the book. Uh, 
that Joe Smith was worried early on that Oliver Cowdery had ambitions of uh, replacing him. He made a confession to um, um, uh, <laughs> Brigham Young's uh, brother. Anyway, Phineas. No, the other guy. <laughs> okay, I think I just exhausted my knowledge of the names of Brigham Young's brothers. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it escapes my mind right now. Uh, okay. So let me. Can I ask you this question? Because it came up last week. There's some dispute in some window, and I'm talking about Fanny Alger in the affair right now. Yeah. Some window for the timing of that and when it occurred, whether it was after April of 1836, which of course is important to Mormons theologically because that's when the sealing power was restored. Do you have any way to put a, well, a narrow window on when that would have happened? Well, I kind of agree with uh, Brian Hales uh, somewhat on this because it seems we don't know the date that it <laughs> occurred, uh, but I believe that uh, when it started being re revealed by Calgary was probably pretty close to the time that it happened, not years apart. Mm -hmm. um, so that would put it probably in 1836. Before or after April? I, I, I think I time it for that. I don't give a date for when it happened. Mm -hmm. I only talk about when it started being discussed publicly. Albert Cadre's bringing it up in Missouri in the High Council, and there's a big dispute between Albert Cadre and Joe Smith. Because so, it happened up in Ohio, right? Yes. The affair itself? Yeah. How did Oliver Cadre find out about this? He was he he was in Ohio at the time. Oh, he was in Ohio. Yeah. Okay. Do you know how he found out about it? Um, I think he learned it from Emma when Emma was like throwing uh, Fanny out and there was a big hubbub about it. And I think Joe Smith went to Oliver Cowdery for help with Emma okay. to get over the bump. Mm -hmm. Or the scrape. Yeah, the scrape. I've got another question for you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologize for doing this, but based on our phone conversations, which yeah. I enjoy very much and I really appreciate them. Is it your position that to the extent that Joseph Smith was, I don't know, manufacturing stories, maybe retroactively about angels and appearing and what they said and what they didn't say, that Oliver Cowdery was to some extent involved in this manufacturing of history yes the ruse well so the first announcement of the angelic ordinations was in uh the letter that oliver cowdery sent to ww phelps from ohio to missouri telling this is the first uh public discussion of an angel that ordained oliver cowdery and joseph smith in may 1829 Cowdery does not name the angel in this letter, uh, but it's to this lesser priesthood, and he is writing it to the Missouri leaders, W.W. W. W. Phelps is one of them, in order to increase their faith. And so I believe this is September 1834, and then the following December is when he's 
ordained a co-president. And then Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery work very closely together for uh, the next year before they have their falling out. Do you see a potential quid pro quo then? Yeah. And Oliver Cowdery's helping to support Joseph Smith's rewriting of history with the angels appearing in 1829 and his getting a bump in, I don't know, uh, what would you call it when you get a, a promotion? Yeah. So he could yeah, be something like that. It, se- it, it appears to be, to me, to be something like a quid pro quo situation. And Cowdery is go- helping Joseph Smith be- to uh, keep the church from splintering, to keep the Missouri church from splintering off because they're very upset at this time. This is in September 1834 is um, uh, right after they come back from Zion's camp. Mm, right. And, well, it strikes um, me that if, if this is the case, and if Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are to some very, very important depths in cahoots with each other, that from Joseph Smith's perspective, he's got to treat Oliver Cowdery with kid gloves, don't you think? Yes, it's a, there. There is a uh, power struggle of a sort, but Joseph Smith wins. How does he win? By getting J- Albert Cowdery excommunicated. Okay. What's but what what stops Cowdery from speaking up at that point? Right, like if if he's no, he was speaking up. Yeah, but it, um, it seems from the evidence that Cowdery is agreeing to tell the narrative that Joseph Smith wants to tell. Meanwhile, he would have firsthand experience knowing that that's not accurate. Book of Mormon translation to some extent, priesthood Mm -hmm. restoration to another. Why, why not speak out? Why not, uh, you know, if you're going to excommunicate. Oh, you mean to say that he, he lied. I lied. Spill the beans. He believes in the project. He believes in the church. Mm-hmm. He believes that uh, it needs to be saved. Okay. Hmm. And I'm sorry, because I know I'm getting you off on all these different subjects <laughs> that we hadn't talked about getting into, but mm-hmm. these this list of did you know brings them to did, my mind. Let's go ahead yeah. and go to the next one, unless you had anything else you wanted to say about Oh, okay. That so ago. if you want more details, read the book. That's right. Please grab <laughs> um, the book. Did you know Sidney Rigdon had oh, so sorry. Uh, threatened... You said next one. I thought you meant slide. Go ahead, my friend. Oh. Did you know Sidney Rigdon had threatened extermination in a 4th of July 1838 speech before Governor Boggs issued his infamous extermination order? I finally get to say yes. <laughs> I finally get to say yes. And also on the last one as well. But it hasn't been that long that I have known about it. It's not like I learned about it in Sunday school or by reading the correlated curriculum. Right. It focuses on the, uh, just the horrible nature of this extermination <clears throat> order by Governor Boggs of Missouri, but no mention in correlated materials about a prior, it's not an order because he's not a governor, but a threat, let's say a threat of extermination to the Missourians if they don't leave the Mormons alone and get in right. line with the Mormon project. And I remember learning about that and just going, well, wait a second, this kind of puts a different light on the subsequent extermination order. It's more in retaliation, perhaps, for this than it is just coming out of nowhere and saying, all the Mormons either leave this state by such and such a date or they will be exterminated. 
Yeah. What do you have to say about that? Um, what was that? July 4th? July 4th. Yeah. Senior Rigdon's uh, uh, oration. And they they actually published it in a pamphlet form. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> where it's calling out this extermination. If if you attack us, we will, you know, go to the ends of the earth to uh, avenge you, you know, and it would be a, a bloodbath. So, so the, yeah, it was leave us alone or else, you know. And that's July 4th of 1838. So it's what, just the following October when Governor Boggs issues the extermination order, right? Yeah. So July, August, September, three months later. It's not yeah. like it's separated in time by that much either. No. And then the last so, one on your list? Oh, I'm sorry. So, so the last one is, did you know uh, Mormon vigilantes under Joseph Smith's command attacked, looted, burned homes and businesses in Davies County? And that's why he was being tried. Okay, well, this this answer is yes, but it came in stages yeah. to me. The first was to find out that Mormon <clears throat> vigilantes attacked, looted, and burned homes and businesses, which thing was hard for me to get my head around because I had understood that they were the constant, mm -hmm. clean-handed victims in all of this who never did anything wrong, but were still set upon by these horrible Missourians. So that was the first thing I had to learn, which all of a sudden changed things dramatically from my viewpoint. But then it was still hidden that it was at Joseph Smith's command. And he was in charge of this. Now, of course, you would think, of course, he's in charge of this. And yet there's been a decided attempt to try and shield him from accountability mm -hmm. for this and putting it off on some fellow named, I think, Samson... Avard, yeah. Samson Avard. Avard, Avard, I don't know. Yeah, as the head of the <laughs> Danites yeah, uh, and the one who was off doing his own thing. It's like those rogue artists that the church has painting pictures of the translation process for publication in the Enzyme. And when it comes to light that that's not the way that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, the church leaders are going, I don't know how those pictures got into the Enzyme. I mean, it's those artists. They're the ones who are, you know, painting this crazy stuff. We didn't ask them to do that. And so it's like, why are, why are the Mormons uh, burning and pillaging? And where's Joseph Smith in this? And then, you know, we'll get him out of the room and put it all on this Samson Avard person. At least that's the apologetics that I read. But then yeah. even more recently, and I'm sure it's in your book, and I read about some of it also in Cheryl Bruno's book and uh, with uh, Nick Letursky. Yeah. And another fellow whose name I'm forgetting right now. Um, it's Schwick. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, Joe. I apologize. Joe. <laughs> right. Joseph, about, Joseph uh, Swick. Yeah, Joseph about Herder. the masonry. Yeah. And Mormonism. And um, in there, it had interesting, fascinating documentation about Joseph Smith being behind it. Yeah. Which makes absolute sense. Of course, he was behind it. Now of course, that I don't he, have a dog he, in he was actually the the uh, president or the <laughs> what is it the um anyway he was the leader of the uh, war department of the church. The church had a war department. Yes, if from Just, from uh, Zion's camp time. Wow! Just like the United States and the general, you know, Lyman White was the general, but he was the commander in chief of the War Department of the Church. Wow. 
Mm, and okay. in, in those raids, there were a lot of Danites, former Danites or Danites that uh, merged with the other, the other uh, militia men of, uh, of um, uh, Caldwell County. Anyway, so that's that. That gives, I hope, uh, you know, a little bit of, um, you know, interest in the book. People might want to read more details on all these matters and more. Where should they go to buy it? Oh well, you know, Amazon is my favorite place. Uh, uh, Benchmark Books is another mm -hmm. favorite place if you live in Salt Lake City, especially. You can go right down and get it. Well, I so certainly want to encourage our audience to uh, get this book. It is a landmark publication. It's just absolutely amazing what I've read and the reviews I've read about it. By the way, I also want to give the secret sign of the Danites here in honor of them, <laughs> which I learned from Cheryl's book. Right there, right? There it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. That's, that's right. a secret sign. Are you a Danite? If you are, give me the secret sign. I guess okay. I'm the only one here. Yep. Okay. So next, oh, we, we're going to go on to now this very fascinating part. And you put this in here at my special request. Yes. Because a number of months <laughs> ago, it could have even been as much as a year ago, you had talked to me about this five-year prophecy. Yeah. And I had never heard about a five-year prophecy. I heard about an 85-year prophecy. In other words, Joseph Smith being 85 years old and Jesus is going to come by yeah. then. Right. Or not before then or whatever it was. I think it actually was. He will come in 85 years. And that got modified too. Uh, or in 1890. But this five-year prophecy. Can you tell us about the five-year prophecy? Yeah. Well, so Joseph Smith had to explain the failure of Zion's camp. And the delay and everybody's really anxious okay uh to get to zion and uh for safety because the holocaust is coming the end of the world's coming and everybody feels very anxious to go and just misses tapping into all of that anxiety it's it's kind of already there before he comes on the scene because uh, the 19th century america is very millenarian and there's lots of like William Miller and others that are predicting the end of the world. And it seems like it, since Andrew Jackson got into office uh, that, you know, there's this uh, secret combination taking over the government and uh, it's the experiment is coming to an end. And um, so it seems like it's very close and a lot of Mormons early Mormons like uh, Martin Harris are predicting Jackson would be the last president, <laughs> you know? And so um, that was a, in 1831. We'll get to that original prophecy, but we'll read the September 11th, 1836, uh, you know, timetable uh, statement. And this is a Joseph Smith letter to Lyman White down in Missouri, 16th of August, 1834. From Joseph's letter book. That's Orange White's father. I, I know that. Orange White. Yeah. Yeah. Orange White. Uh, he can't make up his mind. Texas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Joseph writes use every effort to prevail. This is uh, 1834, August. Uh, this is after his return from Zion's camp. Use every effort to prevail on the churches to gather to those regions 
and situate themselves to be in readiness to move to Jackson County in two years from the 11th of September next, which is the appointed time for the redemption of Zion. Now, my beloved brethren, you will learn by this, we have a great work to do and but little time to do it in. And if we don't exert ourselves in the utmost, get, uh, to the utmost in gathering up the strength of the Lord's house, which is a phrase from the Revelations, that this thing may be accomplished, behold, there remaineth a scourge for the church. So, um, where did this September 11th thing come from? <laughs> right? right. He's and talking it's the, about it as if it's already understood. Yeah, and it, and it's the appointed time for the redemption of Zion. You know, well, so the next slide will tell us that on September 11th, 1831, Joseph Smith dictated a revelation that was meant to ease the anxieties of of people wanting to go to Zion. And there was too, too many people going all at once. And Joe Smith wanted a, a slower, more orderly uh, gathering because they were having difficulty in Missouri accommodating everybody that were that was all, all of a sudden appearing there. So the Revelation, this is from the Revelation book number one. <laughs> uh, For I, the Lord, willeth to retain a stronghold in the land of Kirtland for the space of five years, in the which I will not overthrow the wicked, that thereby I may save some. And after that day, I, the Lord, will not hold any guilty that shall go with open hearts up to the land of Zion. Now, um, so he's not going to destroy the wicked. So we have five years, right? So, so don't get so anxious. And so Joseph turns this, he, he more or less misinterprets his own revelation and turns it into, hey, this is actually a prediction to the day. You know, there's no intent in the original dictation of this revelation for, for this to become a prophecy of when Zion will be uh, restored. But Joseph interprets it that way. Well, doesn't it have to almost be that way? Because I know in 1831 that they haven't run into all the problems that they run into in Jackson County, Missouri, which mainly means getting tossed out. And I think that was uh, 1833, right? Yeah, uh, so the press was destroyed in July 1833, and they were out uh, in November, December of right. the same year. Into another county, of course, or unincorporated, or Clay County. They most of most of them they went in all directions, but most of them went north to Clay County. Right. So, having received this revelation in 1831, two years before that happening, I could see how Joseph Smith would now, under the circumstances that ended up happening and then being yeah. tossed out, look at this. I mean, how else do you look at this? But a revelation that in five years from the date it's given September 11th 1836 that if in those five years or after those five years are over that it's going to be fine the wicked will be what is it I will not overthrow the wicked in yeah. those five years yeah. that after that time he will overthrow the wicked and then everybody can go back to Jackson County and reclaim their place can I just say, too, I mean, we grew up with a narrative of the fulfilled prophecies of Joseph Smith, 
And, you know, the Civil War prophecy is the only one I can remember. (laughs) I'm sure there are others. And I remember some of them, they needed some conjecture and allowances to make work. But somebody ought to, Dan, somebody ought to write a book on the failed prophecies of Joseph Smith. Because well, I that's feel what like this book's be, about. Yeah, they would be just as uh, plentiful as uh, as well, the fulfilled the, ones. This is what well, the book does. Yeah, the book, the the uh, charisma under pressure is the un, unfulfilled prophecy creates part of the part of this pressure, and Joseph Smith's major prophecy, Zion, his ma- the major mi- purposes of his mission failed. You know, it's a total failure, and. Uh, but how does he overcome this failure is what the book is about. Mm. Also, it really how he ama- overcomes it. Isn't it amazing that not just that Mormonism thrived after this, but that it even survived? I mean, well, how does how does a small religious group that's based upon the prophetic charisma of its leader survive mm-hmm. when time after time after time the revelations and prophecies he claims to receive from God end up not panning out. And actually, that's a nice word for it, ending in disaster. (laughs) Yeah, one thing after another, one failed project after another. Um, And the the introduction, I talk about uh, charisma and the social construction of charisma and how it's a symbiosis and an illusion that is created between the follower and the leader. And the, fo- the followers are getting something out of it. And Joe Smith very cleverly pulled them into the institution. He built the institution. So one of the responses to failure is to, to divert attention away, explain delay, but then start focusing on kingdom building and get people involved with that. Plus, he uh, expand right after the failure of Zion's camp, he expands the hierarchy. He has mm. he he organizes the twelve apostles and the seventy, and he pulls some of these people in uh, to where they're invested in the institution. So they have a lot to lose if and they don't want him to fail. So one of the things, I mean, this is a pattern of Joseph Smith's whole life. When he was a money digger, he never came up with any treasures either. But mm-hmm. you still have people like Josiah Stoll at the 1826 trial testifying that he believes that Joe Smith has the gift anyway, you know. And so that's what he learned, how to do that, how to, how to look like a success when you're, when you're failing all over the place. Dan, can I ask you a question? This is yeah. a fantastic revelation that Joseph Smith received. Where yeah. do I find that in the Doctrine and Covenants? Um, section 64, verse 21. Is this well, language why, there? Why does this one get left off? What do you right? mean? So is this is in the DNC? This is... It's there. I, I'm quoting the manuscript, though, because I just okay, took it I'm out of my it book. Right now. Okay. In my book, I'm... I'm um, I used all the manuscripts all the time. The 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 prophecy on our screen is in the current Doctrine and Covenants? Yeah. So it's 64. Was it 21? Yeah. Okay, I've got it here. 64. 
Revelation given through Joseph Smith, the prophet, to the elders of the church at Kirtland, Ohio, September 11th, 1831. 21 says, is it 21? Yeah. Let me go back here and just check it out. Am it I says wrong? 6421. Did I put that on says. Oh, yeah. I will not. It starts with something different. I will not that my servant, Frederick G. Williams, should sell his farm. For I, the Lord, will to retain a stronghold in the land of Kirtland for the space of five years. In the which I will not overthrow the wicked, that thereby I may that thereby I may save some. Okay, so how come in the at least ten times I've read the Doctrine and Covenants, I never saw this, Dan? Well, you wouldn't read it as a prophecy unless you knew the context that Joseph Smith later cat put it into. You know, you would just read that. Oh, five years, and we know they were there for eight years. You know, and. Um, the thing also you have to consider is that at the same time, 1833, they're starting construction of the Kirtland Temple. So I think they're planning on staying a little longer than five years. Yeah, you would think so. Yeah. So, And by the way, verse 22 goes on and states what is next in your quote. And after that day, I, the Lord, will not hold any guilty that shall go with an open heart up to the land of Zion. For the I, the Lord, require the hearts of the children of men. Well, that sounds kind of gruesome. You could put your apologist hat on and you could say that in five years was 1836. 1836 is the Kirtland Bank failure, correct? 37, no. I think. Yeah. I think it opened in January. But there's something the else November. that you're very close to hitting on. Try again, Bill. I don't know. What's uh, <laughs> what's 1836 that went bad that... okay. Yeah, that half the members left over because I was trying. What I was going to do is say oh, that the I Kirtland see. Safety Society Bank fails. The Lord is weeding out the chafe from the wheat, and the chafe now leave the church, and now you have a fulfilled prophecy. Well, the Kirt Kirtland Safety Society or bank it was at first um, was designed to raise money for the redemption of Zion. Yeah, but by but by. Uh, Losing a ton of members, you could make the argument that that's how God overthrew the wicked. Oh, I see. Yeah, see? I'll see how apologetic There's always here. a way. There's always there a way. There is always a loophole. <laughs> what is it that happened, Dan? Okay, well, we'll... Okay. I mean in 1836. Yeah, note. Joseph Smith visited Salem, Massachusetts in early August 1836. One and month before the due money. date. One month before the due date. And he was there looking for money, right? In search of buried treasure for the benefit of Zion. And so was the benefit to use the money to help raise the army to go and take it back by force by the yes. appointed day of September 11th, 1836? Yeah. Gave him the hope that if he sent people to a house in Salem, Massachusetts, he'd actually find money to pay the... In other words, it seems like on the front end, Joseph would know this is not going to go the way he wishes it could. Well, no, they actually had a treasure uh, map or a Burgess, who was a... This, that's all we know is his last name. A member that had told uh, people in Kirtland about a, home, a house... In Salem, in the basement, there was a treasure hidden from a former inhabitant of that house, I would uh, think. And so there was, it wasn't like a stone gazing 
a money digging kind of venture. It was more of a, we heard that there's supposed to be a treasure here and Joe Smith believed he had the inside information on it. And he and other, the presidency actually went there in hopes of actually finding some money and solving a lot of their debt problems and probably uh, helping with the um, retaking of Zion. And first, they've got to walk up and down every street of Salem and find the house. Because <laughs> they just had a description it. of it, right? Not an address. <laughs> right. Well, um, the Burgess guy showed up there in Salem, and he, from a letter he Joe Smith wrote to Emma, sounds like he gave them information, and they they finally located the house. And he he wrote Emma and said it's going to take a little while longer to kind of get into that basement without people being suspicious like buying the house or renting the house to get into it so you know strangely and coincidentally coincidentally this sounds a lot like the plot of the movie gaslight except there it was in the attic hmm. which is where we get the phrase gaslighting did joseph oh. lack the ability to discern that this treasure wasn't real just curious yes <laughs> i bet it was there it was totally why did he there. even they go, why did he go that they far had to buy the house to, yeah. they had to buy the house to to be able to dig and how do you dig in, in the basement of somebody else's house without raising suspicion not enough space to draw your magic circles right they need Tom Cruise to do some kind of mission impossible thing on that so what the point here is that there was a timetable for uh, re redeeming Zion by 1836, se September 11th, 1836. So there what you're are. telling me, Dan, what you're telling me is that in the revelation that was published elsewhere, that when it says that the temple is going to be built in Jackson County, in that generation, it really meant in that generation. Yes. It was really going to happen soon. Uh, in that gen well saying it was this generation was a delay already mm. you know it was an excuse and uh the that revelation section 84 is uh excusing the mormons from the commandment to build the temple because they had gone with all their might to try to fulfill the commandment yes but the prophecy was still in force mm-hmm but not the commandment to build it immediately. And, you know, they drew up plans. They uh, they were oblivious to, you know, when they were up there in Kirtland, they were oblivious to the fact that uh, the Mormons had gotten kicked out of the county and they just kept on planning a city and a temple and mailing it to them. And so, yeah, Joseph didn't know about all of that going on either. So... Anyway, the, the uh, next slide is only a story about where Bishop Partridge said they're sitting around the table eating dinner and Partridge uh, uh, observed Whitney, Bishop Whitney, observed to Bishop Partridge that, that the thought occurred in his mind that perhaps in about one year from this time we might be seated together around a table on the land of Zion. So this is very serious to them that that was a fixed kind of date to them dan isn't that the same idea as next year in jerusalem 
No. It's not? <laughs> well, do you have a date? Like September 11th? But, no, just the ancient saying, the, the last oh. statement of the Seder. Yeah. Since time immemorial, way before 1947, when they did not have a homeland, next year in Jerusalem. Yeah. That next year we'll be having this, this meal in Jerusalem with this idea of hope that they will be able to redeem the land which God gave them, but which, because of circumstances beyond their control, they've been forced off of. Yeah. Well, the, these guys actually were looking forward to the next year because of the prophecy. Right. I mean, but the, the story you're telling is could be told every year for now on. Yeah, and it was. And it still is, <laughs> but um, with a different meaning behind it now that there yeah. is actually a land that they have as their home. But now my wife. So they're very disappointed when it doesn't happen. You know, and uh, there's a letter uh, Parley P. Pratt wrote from England to Joe Smith in Nauvoo in 1840 saying, when, when, when is it going to happen? I mean, you know. What was the rest of this? Was this the second paragraph part of the Well, it's, it's just Emma Smith uh, just repeats what they said. I see. Yeah, she, and wasn't she'll this the same serve, kind of... serve them in Zion. Wasn't this the same kind of hope or belief or expectation that the saints in Utah had as... 1890 approached that they would be returning yeah. back to Jackson County to reclaim it with the divine help of the Lord. Yes. Well, that's that 85 year prediction right. that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. So Joseph Smith would have been 85, which is going to be December 23rd of 1890. So instead right. of getting back to Jackson County, they get a manifesto. Yeah. Mormonism where nothing happens the way they say it will. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> and they just no. keep keep going because okay the institute the institution Mormons are attached to the institution and it means a lot to them and so that failure doesn't really phase them as much as maybe it should. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses got over Jesus not coming back in 1914 too. Yeah. In 1977 again or something? Yeah, well, so in the introduction, I talked about the uh, four things that millenarian groups do when inevitably failure happens. Um, and, you know, like they focus on institution building. They have excuses for the failure. You know, it goes on. So if you want the details, get the book. Um, get the book. Go to Amazon today. <laughs> Buy this book. So now we're going to talk about something that's kind of fun for me because uh, I just posted a video on YouTube about these magic parchments that were handed down in Hiram Smith's family. And I decided since, since we now had pretty good photographs of these documents, actually they're, they're the originals that Mike Quinn published in his book, uh, Mormonism in the Magic Worldview um, in black and white. And these are the color photographs of those. So um, now that we can see them a little more, more clearly, see here, the, here's the parchments right here and the pouch. 
And there's three parchments. You can see we'll look at them a little closer and, and one pouch. And two of them fold up and fit into that four by four inch pouch. So they okay. must be so they're eight by eight, eight by eight. <laughs> we have arrived at the answer. Yeah, that we were trying to figure out. So um and then that third one at the bottom there fold, was folded up many more times and uh, is more damaged and the ink is really light on that one because uh, someone attempted to clean it with turpentine. <laughs> That's, isn't it like that? Was it a Da Vinci painting or it some was, kind of famous painting that someone decided to try and clean with turpentine? Yeah, and a match and no uh so yeah the um it had soot on it and it, the elder g smith actually is the one that tried to clean it with turpentine and then stopped but so the ink is quite faded but not unreadable dan did and elder over g, there did elder g smith live to be 106 years old I don't know. Did no, he? It says 1907 to 2013. <laughs> he was quite old. Yeah, huh. I knew he was up there, but my God. Oh, yeah, okay. You're looking at the dates. <laughs> Sorry. It could, be, um, it could be 106, could be 105. It, it is. Yeah. Wikipedia does say uh, January of 1907 to April of 2013. So, uh, so 2006, wow. right? Yep. Yeah. Oh, my word. Too bad he never See? got to keep his keys. No, he was stripped of them. He was defrocked. So it, it, this family um, tradition is that it was handed down that these were together with Hiram Smith's effects. So his clothes, martyrdom clothes, uh, Lucy Smith's milk stool, uh, Alvin, Smith's, <laughs> Alvin Smith's uh, drawing table, drafting table, lap hey, Dan, for table. Those Dan, for those in our audience who don't know about the parchments, can you give us a thumbnail sketch as to what their purpose is? These, uh, so the two main ones are folded up and put into this parchment. So go to the next slide. Okay. And there, that Joseph Smith electronic uh, image um, shows the pouch on his chest. And you wear that, and you can. There are two per main purposes. One is to, um, you know, uh, call evil spirits to appear, invocate evil spirits, or to protect you from evil evil spirits. Are you summon? Are they to summon evil spirits summon. or good spirits? Good spirits. Sorry. Okay, and protect against evil spirits. And protect against evil spirits. Okay. But there they would be different kinds. This this is an amulet pouch. You you remember where Joseph Smith's seer stone there in his hand uh, came with a little leather pouch, right. little tiny bag, and that would be an amulet bag. And they all sorts of cultures throughout history have used the similar type pouches that fit on the chest like that. Um, and also the, you can put stones in them. You can put 
herbs in them, uh, crystals, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, there's like a, there's voodoo bags. There's all sorts of names Medicine for bag. these amulet bags. And that's one of them right there. It's le it's a leather pouch, and those laymen fit in there and fit on the chest like that. Now, you just so, use a technical term, yeah. layman. Oh, yeah. Could you layman. explain that for the layman? Lawman. Lawman uh, is, in a, is really the pronunciation for uh, Latin. And Latin, it, it means plate. You know, like uh, uh, laminate or is kind of a word that comes from it. Uh, there's a lot of medical terms that use would, lawman. Would Joseph have known? Would Joseph have known that that's what it was called? In other words, my brain automatically know. goes to a character in the Book of Mormon named oh, Layman. Well, that's, yeah, the bag that, is connected to treasure digging, and he knows that it's called that. It seems like that would be a much more plausible source than an ancient character on plates translated to English that turned out to be a ton of 19th century material. Well, I don't know, but how they did they did use that term, but it, I don't know if they pronounced it lawman, like from Latin, or layman, like a lot of Mormons have become in the habit of saying layman. <laughs> no. So I say layman. Um, so at any rate, we can go to the next slide. Here's our parchments. So the first one over here is the holiness to the Lord. It's the most ornate. It's, it's has a lot of gold painting on it. Why a lot it of symbols holiness to the Lord. Because around the three, the sides and the top, it says holiness to the Lord. Okay. So this is just margin. what is this just what historians have called it for ease and reference? Yes. Okay. Holiness to the Lord. Uh, the other one, Saint Peter, bind them. Because it starts out with St. Peter, bind them. The holiness to the Lord one, I believe, was used to protect against evil spirits, not not to summon good spirits. Okay. Um, and St. Peter, bind them, is that to protect you against evil spirits as well? It's, that to, it's to protect against thieves mo okay, for the most part, or, or even human persecutors. People that want it will read read the text of it later. Uh, it's to keep you from being uh, attacked, or is it, it? It invokes the image of being burned at the stake. You know, kind of protect me against evil doers. It says, mm. and the and back, right, right, the back is the bottom. Right below is that what the back looks like? Okay, because I didn't and, know before this there was writing on the back of it as well. Yeah, in the four corners it says. Uh, Bind evildoers from me, some, something like that. And then the third one is Jehovah, 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 because it repeats Jehovah three times on it. Since you can't read it, the one below is a reproduction, a carefully reproduced by Mark Elwood, the artist, who give me, gave me this shirt, by the way. See? Oh, my You'll gosh. See? That's beautiful. Yes. Mark Elwood uh, is the author of uh, Just Smith, Just Smith the Glass Looker, or I think it just says Glass Looker, the Glass Looker. 
Yeah, we had him on the show. It's wonderful. It's an yeah. illustrated, like graphic novel of the early years of Joseph Smith, and I think he has a he has a sequel out too. Yeah, he has another volume. So if I just, understand just this correctly, Dan, of, you've got Holiness to the Lord, which apparently is written only on one side. So we only have yeah, one picture of that. I haven't seen the other side. Then we've got St. Peter buying them. Mm -hmm. And then below that, we have the, uh, well, the other side of it. The other side. And that's for uh, against thieves. Yes. And the third one is to protect your home against evil spirits. Yes. And that one, that's the Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah one. And every time I say that, I have to laugh because I keep thinking of a Monty Python sketch. Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. But yeah, and I, I watched that because of you. And, <laughs> and that's exactly how they say it. That's exactly how they say it. Yes. <laughs> but, but below that, on the Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah one, yeah. that's not the opposite side. That's the no. same side, but it's reproduced yeah. by an artist to try and make it something that's clear because... Yeah. Somebody had tried to wipe the soot off of it and had pretty much almost completely erased what was there originally. Right. And you could still read it, the, that he, he wrote it there. And we do know what the words are supposed to say for the most part. Uh, and we'll see that a little bit later, too. Okay, okay, so we'll go to the next one. That's our holiness to the Lord parchment or layman. Lawman, so you see around the uh, uh, three sides is holiness to the Lord, and on the bottom, three written three times is the Tetragrammaton, which is the YHWH for Yahweh. So it's saying Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah yeah. again, just right in Hebrew. Uh huh. Then we have a uh, uh, a. In the smack dab in the center <laughs> is a 12-pointed star of Raphael. Raphael. And Who the heck Raphael. is Raphael, Dan? The angel Raphael, Joe Smith mentioned in, I think, 1842 letter. Um, the voice of Raphael, but we don't know when this voice ever happened. And it's but, interesting to me that there's nothing in church history. You correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the expert. There's nothing in church history in the documents when we have that mentions anything about a Raphael until right. all of a sudden, 1842, uh, Joseph Smith is sort of recapping the highlights of the restoration. And with all these other things that he talks about that we have heard about, like Moroni and um, these different things, he talks about Raphael. The and angel Gabriel. Raphael appearing in, as some part, and Gabriel too, right? As yeah. some part of this restoration where we don't know what he's talking about, <laughs> right. but there's only one place that we can pinpoint, and it's yeah. this parchment. Is that right? Yeah, and so, well, this, and this Raf, uh, Raphael appears prominently in the center, so it's a very important part of it. We'll see a little bit later uh, more about what that little 12 pointed star is all about then so the layout of this is in the four corners there's various symbols and in the middle there's that main symbol and then there's two uh smaller ones that looks like a maltese cross over there on the left and on the very bottom it looks like a bird <laughs> you know <laughs> and above that it says uh uh ihs 
then so and also notice on the three side the sides and the top underneath holiness to the lord are some strange looking characters and they're all the same aren't they yeah they're they're all the same and nobody knows what they are the you know nobody's been able to find them until until now we have a kind of a better idea of what they are and then uh, we'll talk about that. And then in between all the spaces, there's this gold paint, various astrological symbols we'll look at also uh, as we go. Dan, I apologize yeah. for interrupting. Is it really gold or is it just gold colored paint? I don't know. I've never seen the original, but because if it's I real probably gold, wouldn't I mean, know anyway. <laughs> it's starting to get kind of pricey. This is something that would be expensive. Yeah, well, you wonder if it's gold leaf, you mean? I don't yeah. know. I don't okay. know what else would be gold color anyway. But Tumbaga. It's Tumbaga. <laughs> 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 All right. So let's go to the next one. We'll try to go a little faster here. Is that oh. the one you want? Yeah. So these are our key occult books here, you know? There's Cornelius Agrippa, and the English version of that, 1651, but originally in Latin, 1533, and it had a big influence on subsequent books. And the next important oh, book by is... by the way, Dan, just yeah. so you know, a lot of people will be hearing this on audio only. Yes. So if you can read the titles of the books, too, that'd be really oh, helpful. yeah. Three books of occult philosophy written by Henry Cornelius Agrippa of... Nettlesheim, Nettlesheim, or whatever. And then uh, the next one is Discovery of Witchcraft. And, you know, this title goes on for like five paragraphs, so I won't bother reading that. Yeah, just the, but, the main title. <laughs> the Discovery of Witchcraft by R Reginald Scott, 1584, has a lot of magic symbols and things, as we'll see, um, in it, even though his book was an ex- expose of magic oh uh, the next one is uh, <laughs> i can't read it new and complete illustrations of the occult sciences yeah there you go thank you ebenezer scott 1784 and then finally the magus which is a really main text because it's so close to joseph's time francis barrett 1801. Right, and Bill and was showing to, us a book that I think yeah. might have been the Magus. So, so I've got a copy. Oh, cool. Yeah, and, I see that's uh, one of it, the spirits. It tells you how to consecrate oil. It yeah. tells you how to do all the magic circle stuff. There's certain How do you consecrate oil, Bill? Oh, I'd have to go back and I just saw it, but I'll have to go back and find it again. Uh, I'm just wondering if there's anything that might sound familiar to me. No. No? Probably <laughs> not. <laughs> Okay, but you got to consecrate oil. You just can't just be using oil willy nilly. It's got to be consecrated. Right, exactly. Lots of cool stuff in there. Oh my gosh, Lots yeah. of symbols. magic so, spell stuff. So and we'll Dan, be talking about it because some of the symbols that are on the parchments are in that book. Right. So you got four books, and the reason four you're books. focusing on these four books is because they are. are likely Go sources ahead. for symbols and stuff that's on the parchments, right? Yeah. So okay. there's a one of those circles that were on the. Um, Holiness to the Lord and Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. 
<laughs> so this one, this circle is the, uh, the power of it is whoso beareth this sign about him, all spirits shall do him homage. So that sounds like an important thing yeah. to, to rule over the spirits. And like I said, it's for protection. Uh, the, the overall message of the holiness to the Lord parchment is for protection against evil spirits. So you can see this is a little bit of what Quinn had published here. You'll see that arrow pointing to that little boxy shaped thing. And you compare it to Scott and Sibley's books. And you can see that it's closer to Sibley's 1800. Well, I'm using the 1807 edition. Uh, Sibley's book, which was first published in 1884. I mean, 1784, excuse me. Mm. So you can see, so Quinn uh, suggested that that could be a source that whoever made the parchment, even, even in an ice caution that it, I don't think whoever made the parchment necessarily copied it directly out of this book. It could have been copied out of a, a grimoire, which is a collection of symbols, or maybe another parchment was similar to it. It doesn't mean that the creator of the holiness to the Lord, uh, layman was the one that copied it from the book. That's kind of an assumption that I think, if you look at these really carefully, you can see that there's too much, there's variation even from Sibley's book. Mm. Okay, next, next one. Um, so on this wheel, <laughs> I call it a wheel. This one is whoso beareth this sign need fear no foe. And then at the bottom is uh, one of Sibley added. I believe it's Sibley, but fear God. Mm. Um, so you can see the arrows here point to varying variations. And again, Sibley's is closer. And Quinn thought that was in evidence. So he concluded that the, lay, the, the holiness to the Lord layman had to be created after Sibley's book had been published. In 1807? No, the earliest would have been a 1784. Okay. I'm using the 171807 edition. Okay. Um, okay, next. Okay, here. So that, see that egg-shaped? For the longest time, we just saw this egg-shaped thing. And with this omega and agla. And agla is an uh, ag LA stands for it's um I didn't write it out but I forget what it stood for it's some latin phrase or hebrew phrase excuse me so um Quinn had found in the British Museum that symbol and an explanation of what it meant so then I found in the published source called The Astrologer of the 19th Century, published, written by and published by um, Robert uh, Cross Smith in 1825. 
and there's on the shield of that warrior there is that symbol and the same shape so now it makes sense of why we're looking at around this egg kind of shape thing it's supposed to be a shield for protection and what's it that symbol means uh he that beareth this sign about him shall be holpen or helped in every need or necessity ancient manuscript and, that, and that's a quote from that um book the 1825 book and it says ancient manuscript well it turns out that that quote is from the thing that quinn found in the british museum in the middle there under right underneath it in the original manuscript is are those words so so this the guy robert smith in 18 the 1825 book is Get, got his idea for this shield from that manuscript. So it would seem that it would date the holiness to the Lord parchment to after 1825. Right. And can you tell us about the shield and the shading? Yeah. So next uh, slide. There is a close-up. So there's the shield. And if you look really close, you can see these faint lines. Uh, and for the longest time, we, we didn't know what that was. What is that? Well, if you look on the um, shield in the printed version, it's probably emulating that shading. So you think it came from the book. Now, if you look at that R-shaped at the on the shield, there's kind of r Yes. Shaped at the bottom, and then on the Holiness to the Lord version, it's yeah. kind of messed up. Yeah, I don't see it there. It's it's there, but it's kind of twisted sideways. Okay. So that's I why I say one. I don't think they copied it directly from the books. Ah, okay. That it's probably a copy of a copy of a copy kind of situation going on here where it has been changed, altered by various different... Um, artists and so but there, we might find again? out more later it might make more sense when we find more information all of these so far seem to have the meaning of uh triumphing over foes yeah. whether they be spirits or whether they be people right yeah exactly um so let's go to the next one Now, this it, I call asymmetrical pentagram or star. Yeah. And you can see how on the Holiness to the Lord, kind of, if you compare it with Sibley on the far right, it's a little messed up. But the one in the middle, which comes from the St. Peter bind them, is pretty close. Yes. And only the Holiness to the Lord writes Adonai in the, in the center. Mm -hmm. The other two are blank. And around it is tetragrammaton, is what is in little pieces, tetragrammaton, which is, uh, it's it's referring to the YHWH, but in magic lore, tetragrammaton actually becomes a name, you know. 
Oh, the whole, word holy, tetragrammaton becomes becomes a name, a holy name. Yeah. Uh, oh, even though it's the what the anglicized version of the name that's applied to the four Hebrew letters, which yeah, give the Jehovah name, the one that is the most sacred name, right. and not even to be spoken. So it's tetragrammaton. You know, it's like is a description of the, of the Y H W H for the four consonants. And in the middle of the holiness to the Lord, um, a pentagram. Yeah. That's the one that has Adonai. Is that correct? Yes. And can you explain That's Adonai? That's one. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be in the center of the 12-pointed uh, star as well. And that's one of the most holiest in ma the magic lore, the most holiest of all names. So you've got Adonai, which is a name for Lord, correct? Yes. And it's in the middle of a... That's what they use as Lord, yes. Okay. And it's in the middle of a, uh, I'm saying a pentacle or a pentagram, that yeah. has in the other parts Tetragrammaton, mm -hmm. which is also a holy name. Yes. So is this being used in some way to imbue the parchment with holiness? What's going on here? Um. No certain explanation, but yeah, it's a holy name, and they use these holy names and various other names for various different reasons. And the each planet, you'll find out, each planet of the seven planets has holy names attached to it. And Adonai, it or Adonai, Adonai is a holy name attached to Mars. Okay. So at the time, there's seven uh, planets, including the, what, the sun and the moon, right? Sun and, yes, exactly. Sun yes. and moon, and it lines right up with seven angels and all these other important yeah. things S about seven. Seven angels, seven spirits, se uh, seven intelligences. And so that goes out to uh, Saturn, right? Because Uranus hadn't been discovered yet. You're telling me. And, when it <laughs> and Uranus messed everything up. Hold on. As far as the number seven goes, I mean. In order to avoid the jokes, they now call it Uranus. Yeah, no joke there. Hold on. It's kind of like a no-win situation for Uranus. It's the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. You oh, know what that, that one I know having? from. You know what the Kobayashi Maru is, don't you? No, know? you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a no-win situation. Oh. I don't believe. In a no-win scenario, yeah. So you zero seventies. So, have we given you enough time to find what it is you're looking for now, Dan? Oh, I lost my picture. I accidentally hit my mouse. Okay, so next uh, slide. There's that twelve-pointed star, and on the on the right is Barrett, eighteen oh one book. It's the only book that I, that I could ever find. I don't think there is another one that has the Raphael star in it. And so it's right in the middle. It. And it's right in the middle. And it says Raphael on the holiness to the Lord one as well. And then it has other Hebrew words around it in those little compartments. Right. It has Adonai in the middle, right below Raphael. Okay. But we'll see what those words mean around this in the compartments. What's the word below Raphael? It's Adonai. It's in Hebrew. 
Raphael is the only word in that 12-pointed star on the holiness to the Lord. I believe it's the only word that's written in English. Yes. Or is Adonai written in English too, Dan? No. Okay, it's, it's written, written in, in it's written one. in Hebrew. Because these words, these words have really similar words in the Book of Mormon, you know, uh, Ladonai, Lamoni, Gidgadonai, you know, there's there's these kinds of anyway, it it just strikes me as being sort of similar, whether it's me finding parallels where there really isn't, or whether there's something there. Okay, so let's keep going. Okay. Okay, here's Raphael. Who is Raphael? Well, Raphael is mentioned, um, well, <laughs> in Tobit as a spirit, uh, as a, a one of the seven angels that uh, go before the Lord. And Raphael actually bound Satan uh, in the in the de in the desert bound Satan, or an evil spirit, uh, Admodius. Admodius? Asmodeus? Something like that. Not to be confused with Amadeus. So, so this is this is just the one where uh, the voice of Gabriel and of Raphael and diverse angels all declare in their dispensation. So showing that Joseph Smith talked about Raphael. So, it's, Dan, i got to ask you a question. Given this huge gap... In any mention of Raphael, between section 128 and the parchment, is it possible? I know anything's possible. What do you think the likelihood is that Joseph Smith is there referencing the parchment itself and his money-digging activity, since we have no reference to uh, Raphael being involved in any way in the restoration? Um... Well, it's, I think he's very aware of um, the seven angels uh, in Judaism and Kabbalah and all that stuff. Um, I don't Is know. Is it like he's, he's trying to shoot? I, I wouldn't go so point. far as to say he's referencing the, this parchment, though. Yeah, you know. Is it like he's trying to say that they were all involved? And um, I don't have the stories on it, but I can drop the names now. Do I? <laughs> I mean, it's like angelic name dropping. Oh, I is see what I hear him doing. I see. Everybody yeah. was involved in this. All the important angels were involved. I didn't mention them. I don't have a story associated with them, but it's 1842. And I'm going to tell you that I heard their voices and other diverse angels, which may be the other four, in addition to Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael, all declaring their dispensation. And of course, there's seven angels, which lines up with seven dispensations. Yeah. Interesting, don't you think? Um, yeah. So, the Book of Tobit. I am he goes. He says uh, when he appears, uh, "I am Raphael, one of the seven holy angels, which present the prayers of the saints and which go in and out before the glory of the Holy One." And then Barrett says, "Raphael did apprehend the demon called Asmodeus." and bound him in the wilderness of the upper Egypt. So I think Raphael was attractive to the creator of the holiness to the Lord, Laman, because of binding evil spirits. Yes, that makes sense. That makes sense. By the way, just for uh, reference for anybody who doesn't know, 
the name Raphael is an angel or any name doesn't occur in the Bible as we have it today with the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament or the Greek Scriptures, but it does appear that one time that Dan's been referring to in the Apocrypha, in those 14 or so intertestamental books, which generally we don't have in our Bibles today, not in the LDS version, but which were present in Joseph Smith's Bible from which he was doing the, um, the Joseph Smith translation. Thank you. Yeah, that's that is a big uh, help there with uh, providing that context. Dan, can I, I ask I you forgot something? To mention. <laughs> Reading that part about uh, binding the spirit, Upper Egypt, Raphael. Yeah. And why this might be attractive to whoever made this parchment. Did that just occur to you? No. Okay, you've had that idea before. Yeah, it's, it, that's why I say that, that this parchment, the holiness to the Lord, is not to. Uh, summon good spirits it's to protect against evil spirits because when you go money digging you're afraid of the guardian spirit which is usually an evil spirit guarding the treasure is going to attack and you draw the magic circle right mm -hmm. and you you go around it like joseph smith senior saying an incantation and that you're supposed to be protected and, and it's supposed to keep the evil spirit out of the circle so that you can dig and get the treasure. And you would be concerned. That's why you're wearing the layman uh, uh, on your, okay. around your neck yeah. when you're doing all this stuff to, to protect yourself against the spirits that are guarding these treasures. Okay. So that All makes right. sense to so, me that it would fit right in with the treasure digging activities. Yeah. It, it, just to show you in the Magus, for instance, uh, that page, if you look yeah. at the bottom, it says something about the magic circle. So, yeah. So that is like the page. And some of those shapes are the ones we went over earlier, the 12 star. Yeah. Which sort of is a star. Well, that, uh, that one uh, looks like a star of David. Mm -hmm. That's a seal of Solomon. That's one of the things that's supposed the to seal appear of on a parchment. Can I see the seal of Solomon? Because Greg, yeah. who mentioned that during so the you can, you can, So you see that... Which one are we... Is it here? Yeah. Let me uh, let me do this. I'm going to make... Uh... Is it the now ring? You see, you see on the right, there's that Raphael star. Yes. And above it's a regular star. And then on the other side of the page is a seal Solomon. That's what's supposed to be on the parchment, but you can replace it with the 12-pointed star. Okay, so the seal of Solomon is the, the six-pointed star, a star of David, with yes. additional accoutrements. Yeah, and so the Raphael star is a double, is double that. Hmm. I know how you love big words, Bill. I yeah, thought I'm going to add that one to my original charge. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay, so really the ready. seal of solomon is the star of david yes hmm, okay all right so are we ready to go to the next slide all right okay this one is a page from barrett it's kind of a key a key page it shows the seven planets and those red lines are in that star, 12-pointed star, those are all the Hebrew words that they chose to put in the star. 
And at the bottom is uh, the numbers of Mars. And then you see Adonai. And it's written in Hebrew. You can't exactly make it out maybe, but it, on the far right is the Hebrew of Adonai. And a number, 65. Okay. And this is where, where you get into numerology. If you, in Hebrew, if you, you assign numbers to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, A's one, B's two, so on. And then you get up to 10, then it goes to 20, then it goes to 30, and so on. If you take each Hebrew letter in the name uh, Adonai, it adds up to 65. So the same thing with all those names. And you'll see that uh, Mars is kind of key to this 12-pointed uh, star. So it has Adonai, but if uh, at the top of the next page, you'll see on page 147, Graphiel, the intelligence of Mars. You know, I want to ask like, you, what, what does that mean? Because Graphiel, that's the name of an angel, Graphiel. correct? That's the good... Yeah, angel or good spirit of Mars. What does intelligence mean in that context? That it's a good spirit? Yeah. Okay. And the one it says just the spirit of Mars, like when it, you you might think assume that that's a good thing, but it's not. A spirit is the, those familiar spirits, right? And mm -hmm. it's a bad, it's an evil spirit, the evil spirit of Mars. I can't read it, but so it looks like uh, Barzabel. There you go. Barzabel is the spirit of Mars. Graphiel is the intelligence yeah. of Mars. It appears from this that there is some intended difference between the intelligence of Mars and the yes. spirit of Mars. The intelligence for each of them. There's intelligence it, yeah, of for the each sun, of, spirit of the sun. Yeah. So look at the one for Venus. Ketamil, the spirit of Venus. That's that's a bad spirit. That shouldn't be on the parchment, really, but um, it is. So if you, it, Barrett says you shouldn't put uh, evil spirits on the parchment unless you intend some sort of evil, you know. So I summoning them, maybe, perhaps. Maybe they, maybe they did uh, intend evil. You know, this might be on, the reason the treasure sunk into the earth every time. Like they might have messed up the did, spell. They, screwed they did it wrong, man. <laughs> oh my gosh! If only they. Okay, managed. so and but, the other ones are just holy names, and we'll we'll see how it works out with that star. Keep going, uh, Dan. I do want you to address something about the difference between intelligence and spirit, and whether that may have played any role in Joseph Smith's development of this idea of calling spirits intelligences. In later writings, I'm thinking of Abraham chapter 3, as yeah. well as the King Follett Discourse. Yeah, we were talking about that on the phone, and I thought that was a good possibility that um, when the book of Abraham talks about the council and calls them the intelligences, um, I, I think there's a good chance that it was influenced by magic lore of the seven intelligences of the seven planets um what the um the in the term intelligences though is also used by thomas dick and and others 
um, for spirit interchangeably with spirit. It seems like anyway. So I think I think it's something to think about. Can you um, can you give me a oh. like? If, what's your best guess on how familiar Joseph would be with, say, the Magus book by by Barrett? Would he have? Would this have been something that he would? Again, I'm asking you to guess because we don't really have conclusive evidence other than these parchments. We know it's in the family. Um, would Joseph have been familiar with all of this? Understanding I, I don't know how familiar planets and understanding yeah. that kind of stuff. Well, I think uh, some of his information probably came from smaller books or handwritten copies. There's a lot of what they call grimoires, which are co handwritten collections of these kinds of spells, spell books that just compile one after the other. And some of some of these books are made from uh, grimoires, where they because some of these publications just. Uh, one after the other, give spells. This spell, a spell for this, a spell for that. A lot of spells deal with love and theft. <laughs> love and theft, to quote Dylan. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> but we so, do know that regardless of what Joseph Smith knew about these grimoires or these particular books, that he did have a Jupiter talisman, which he kept as some kind yeah. of perhaps uh, lucky slash magical piece. Yeah, oh, well, that's that's the tradition attached to the object, and that's the that's provenance as much as you'll get from a lot of artifactual type things. Uh, you know, a lot of um, objects that come from the past don't come with a history, a pedigree, or anything a provenance with them. Uh, right. But there's a family tradition and. I think if you want to doubt it, I mean, they came with a bunch of other things owned by Hiram Smith. So the assumption is that these uh, parchments were, uh, together with all those other objects, being handed down from one patriarch to the next. Mm -hmm. Anyway, here we have those Hebrew words you can see in the the uh, transliterations of them. Graphiel is on the east point, and... Um, Ketamel is on the south point. Uh, you can see Adonai is right below Raphael. So I think uh, you get an idea what they're doing. They're trying to um, put down good spirits. Uh, they have an evil spirit in there for some reason. I don't know the thinking on that, but it looks uh, like Hoda appears twice. Yeah. What does hold mean? I don't know. It's a whole it's considered a holy name in that Barrett's chart. Okay. And the same with Vow and Doni? Yeah, all and of them. El Ab. Yeah. Okay. And I and these are the ones they chose out of all the ones they could have. But you can see it's kind of evenly they drew on it evenly from each planet. Oh, I see. Right. They wanted representation. Is it of all seven planets there's, that are represented in this 12-pointed star? Yeah. So, then we'll go on to the next one. There's a fullness of magic in that 12-pointed yeah. star. There's all the uh, 
names, the numbers, and they add up to 687. And then Quinn believed that 687, for some reason, um, this this number meant something and was uh, relates to the creator of the parchment, but I seriously doubt it. As I understand it, Quinn and you as well have tried to see if you could come up with somebody whose name would yeah. equal Quinn 687, tried, and it's been yeah. unsuccessful. Quinn tried, uh, but the thing is, is that that's not the intention. That's not Barrett's intention in, in his list and numbers and things uh, to f try to find somebody whose name also, if you take the Latin, Agrippa made a list of uh, Latin letters and numbered equivalents and then that's what quinn used to try to find uh, so, someone who might may have been the creator of the, the layman well that's not why barrett put these numbers on these names these are just come from jewish numerology and the kabbalah kind of thinking and it's a number it's a nice number. It's, you might use that number if you were, you know, doing the lottery or something. But hmm. uh, it didn't me. It didn't have any connection to using. You just randomly chose. How could you take your name, whatever number yours added up to? Joseph mm -hmm. Smith added up to four hundred and something. Not even close. Yeah. How can you take your name and then look at this list and try to find an exact match? that would add up to the n numbers that your name added up to. It's just not practical. And it's, it's not, like it was never intended to be done that way. It reminds me of the old saying, sometimes a Graphael is just a Graphael. Yeah. I am seeing Hode, H-O-D, at least in the magic world, stands for the tree of life. It's the sphere of solar level of consciousness. It's the realm of ideas and communication of magic contracts and travel. The idea of reality creating has its basis in this sphere and the skill to manifest and unmanifest things at will. Wow, that sounds pretty cool. What does nuance hode yeah. mean? Nuance hode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not... Nuance chode, yeah. Okay. Hey, Dan, this <laughs> yes. is fascinating. Can we hit the high points of the next slides and uh, yeah. let some people call in? Because I know there's lots of people out there who want to ask you some questions. Well, that would be, be cool. So here's the names of the two. We won't get into what they represent. It's just all similar of protection and things like that. Palipa so, and Nalga. They're two more angels, right? Yeah. Pele Pele. Pele Pele. <laughs> you got to say the name right. Otherwise, they get really surly. <laughs> No, Pele Ale. <laughs> uh, pa Lai Pa. Na, nalga. So those are symbols that are uh, have meanings attached to them according to Sibley and uh, Scott. Okay, go to the next one. We're going to go fast. See, there they are. There's a long, there's a long definition for it. Uh, for this is the Nalga symbol. The top one is the one for uh, the holiness to the Lord, and, and the Saint Peter bind them has an, another version of it. You can see over here on this side, Scott and Sibley have the same, a little different, and it's closer to Sibley again. Okay. Closer. Yep. 
Okay, go. Next one. So Naga is the third good angel of ceremonial oh. magic. Yeah. And Pali Pa is the second of seven angels of ceremonial magic. So they've got number yeah. two and number three in there. What happened to yeah. number one? Well, we'll get to one more at least. Okay, okay. so there. this is uh, Scott's uh, definition of the Pali Pa. It, and what I was going to discuss was, is it for virgins only? which Quinn thought it was for virgins, and therefore it would date the holiness to the Lord parchment before 1827 when Justmuth got married. <laughs> yeah. and But I don't believe it's strictly for virgins, and that's why I quote Scott. It, it, it um, teacheth all the names and powers of angels and give gives holy charms against the assaults of evil demons. That's, that's what it's for. Yes. Okay, next. No, this I'm talking about the IHS is in hoc signo or Jesus hominum salvator. In this sign conquer, which is um, what Constantine and his crusaders, <laughs> that when Constantine had a vision of the cross, this is what was in hoc signo. Winkus is what he said, in this sign conquer. So they put the cross on their shields, right? Yes. And then uh, the other one was then later in the medieval period, it turned into a Jesus Savior of men. But with the same initials. Yeah. So that's what you think the IHS above this. The, uh, uh, there was a, I, I and J were not distinguished in Latin at that time. So it's an IHS. That's the way they interpreted IHS anyway. Okay. Go. You can go. Okay. So this is the filler signs in gold. They're basically the zodiac signs, the planet signs. Okay. Go. Can I just say something oh. that, that struck me? Is that right above the centerpiece, that 12-pointed star, just to the north of it? Oh, that's not the part, but uh, right to the north of it, because I had never really seen it before, but it's this huge, it's rather large sign of, it looks like either 21 or capital, capital letter four, <laughs> excuse me, there are no capitals, or a letter four, but that's the sign of Jupiter right there, yes, correct? That's the sign of Jupiter, which is that Jupiter talisman that we'll look at in a moment. Um, yes. And, and it looks sort of like a four, so it looks sort of mm -hmm. like a four. And that's a good thing to point out, too, that shape for when we discuss those mysterious characters. Where is the next part that has the three crosses in gold? Where is that okay. located? Yeah, the next part. So below the circle, below the circle, and next to, yeah, next to the 12-pointed star is our three crosses. Like okay, because I had never seen those before either. For the crucifixion, mm -hmm. for Golgotha. Or, you know, Calvary. But, you, but the next one is a close-up of that where I can see the... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Bill. Oh, there, there they are. They're, go they're in gold, so it's kind of hard to see. Oh, okay. And that's the way they are. And so what we're dealing with is a Christian. Well, we got holiness to the Lord written on it. 
but we're, we're doing dealing with the Christian um, document. This is Christian or white magic, not black magic, mm -hmm. not satanic magic. And this is the way they looked at it. These uh, Agrippa, Barrett, Sibley, they all believe that this was part of Christianity. Okay, so let's go to the next one. And this is where we get to our mysterious characters. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So Quinn counted nine. But I counted the one with the parentheses around the capital I looking as one. Number two, and correct, I was, in yours. Pardon? Number two in your list. There's one yes, and number two. two. And two is yes. the one you're talking about that you count the three elements as one figure. Yeah. And Michael Quinn counted as three separate. Yeah, so I was looking at these, and I so seven. Once I got seven, I go, well, that's a very important number in in uh, magic. You know, it could be the seven planets, the seven spirits, the seven angels. So I said, well, it looks more like it's going for planets because number six looks like a moon, right? Yes. And number five. Kind of reminiscent of that four we were just talking about Jupiter. Mm -hmm. mm. So I'm going. Uh, well, and see that number two looks like a sun sign. Okay, go to the next slide. It might help too, because <laughs> I think the next one has the symbols. There we are. So see number two. I have the sun, and it's a dot in a circle. I go, well, you know, somebody's trying to disguise it that maybe they got creative and made that sign instead. Then I thought, well, maybe the um, sideways S could stand for Saturn. And the two M's, sideways M's on the beginning and the end could be Mars and Mercury. Okay. This is all me speculating before I this discovered is, this is one of the mysteries of this parchment, isn't it? Uh, yeah, what are these? What what's trying to what is being represented? And then I said that, you know, maybe that slash the last thing was Venus, like one side of the V shaped, you know, thing. Just being creative here. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Then I found this book called the High German Fortune Teller. And it's a it's only 24 pages. It's a chapbook. It's what is known as a chapbook. And on page 22 were these characters in a spell for against thieves. And it says, write these characters on a parchment, um, a virgin parchment. A new parchment or whatever, a fair parchment, I think that's the word. It write these characters. Well, so there's those two sideways M's facing the right direction, same direction. Then number two is those parentheses, but it has a dash. Right. By the way, Dan, am I understanding yeah. it correctly that this um well this horizontal piece above we know comes from one of the magic parchments? Oh. Yeah, those are the magic characters we were, those seven characters we were just looking at. And the line below comes from this pamphlet. From this pamphlet. For, and and the date to... of this, date yeah, go of ahead this with pamphlet. The 
I'll let you look uh, it up while I mention that when they <laughs> printed the pamphlet, they had to use numbers and signs that were available to them yeah. with their typesetting, right? Yes. In order to approximate these other symbols. So on the parchment, they're drawn in, but here they had to be um, used with type that already existed. So therefore, they took an M, put it on the side for the first one, took an, the same M probably, put it on the other side for the seventh one. Yeah. And everything else in there, we can maybe see things that we've seen in other printed materials. Oh. It's about 17... There's no date on it is when it got published, but the best uh, guess is seven in the 17, I mean, see, uh, 1780s. Okay. So how did you come across? German? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bill. How did you come across this book? Like you just scrolling through eBay and you saw this for sale and you thought, man, this might have a connection to Joseph Smith. Like I, I'm always curious how people find their cool things. Well, this happened to be, um, a book that was published recently by a scholar that had several texts in it, spells. It was a collection of spells. And he couldn't reproduce these characters, but he was describing them. <laughs> and I go, that sounds familiar. I want to see what the characters look like. Because he said that uh, he mentioned some sideways he put some substitutes in there, and he says in a footnote that these are really an original sideways M's, I think. And I said, oh, sideways M's. So let's see what it looks like. And he referred me to this book, that book there, and I went hunting for it, and I found it. And I found it, and I looked at it, and I go, wow. <laughs> you know, like, so that's how I found it. It was a, quite by accident. You're just um, reading a bunch of old magic spell books and – yeah, well, it was a, a current scholar that had reproduced him. LDS in, scholar in his, or just like his, Oh, just, just, a, his... just a scholar of esoterica. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I started, I contacted uh, Joseph Peterson at esoterica.com to ask him if he, these characters looked familiar to him since he was so familiar with ma magic uh, texts because that's what his uh, es esoterica dot com is is uh has a collection of all these texts mm. in electronic version mm. and um he couldn't rec he didn't recognize them so i thought well you know i think maybe uh whoever made the parchment made it made up the characters because joe smith is known for making up characters you know <laughs> so but so are many magicians a lot of there's a lot of magic uh, scripts out there that are just made up they're all made up but uh a, a lot they a lot of them made made up various alphabets you know like john d's enochian uh, alphabet and others well anyway so go to the next slide and so these are those uh typographical uh, characters for using in footnotes, right? Right. So the f the first one is a, a section mm -hmm. sign. Mm -hmm. This appears a lot in, uh, in legal writings. Um, 
So what, those are two forms of double S's put together in different ways, but they're both double S's, which is like that S up above. And it, it, it is the one that is from that high, high German fortune-telling book uses the double S right where the S is on the holiness to the Lord parchment. You know? So it's a double S. It's like an S, a double S. Then there's uh, the next one is a sign that they use for parallel. These, you know, parallel texts that they used to use in these old books. Which Dan, is can the I ask one, you a question? Yes, which uh, corresponds to that V-shaped thing, or what I thought was a V-shaped. It corresponds to that line, lops, the slanted line. Top line from the Holiness to the Lord Parchment, number three, the sideways S. Yeah. On the right side of the sideways S, does it have a tail that ends in a cross? Yes. No. The is cross, cross? Is, is the object below that. I thought okay. that too for a while. But if I had all three of them right up here, you would see right away that it's not attached. Okay. Um. Anyway, so the parallel line corresponds to that slanted line on the holiness to the Lord. Then we have uh, what would correspond to the four-shaped. That four-shaped thing's sort of like Jupiter, but it's also an alchemy sign for steel. It, the alchemy thing is nearly identical to that. But um, then the moon shape thing corresponds to a pilcrow, which is a paragraph sign. It, it's a it's a curved paragraph sign, not the one you're used to, like a P, backwards P sign for paragraphs nowadays. But in the old typescript, they used that curved one. And that's what's being depicted in the center one. So there you have it. So I believe that's the source. So um, some sort of, I don't know how exactly it attaches to this holiness to the Lord thing, where, you know, there's what the uh, branches of this tree uh, document bush might look like, you know, mm -hmm. uh, where exactly each one fits into this. Okay, so go to the next one, which is to find out a thief. And you'll see the on the left of it is the are those signs. But it says put down the minute when the goods were stolen and the planet ruling the day. So this done, put down the following characters on a fair piece of parchment. There they are. So turn round thrice, and if you hear no news of the thief in 24 hours, as 10 to 1 you will, prick the parchment full of holes and hang it up the chimney, where the heat of the fire may a little scorch it, and the thief will be so restless that he will bring back the goods. I'm getting the image of a voodoo doll being held over a fire. <laughs> yeah. Strange, huh? And, and I, th I was wondering if this instruction here, some kind of roundabout way relates to that third parchment being covered with soot. Yeah. Here, folks, is the beginning of Mormonism. 
right here. <laughs> Superstition meets Christianity. Yeah. Treasure digging. Yeah. Here Why we go. didn't Joseph Smith use this to get the 116 freaking pages back, yeah. man? Yeah, so that's the point. Um, there's all this stuff about thieves protecting against evil spirits. It's, <laughs> I'll bring it, I'll, I'll talk about it towards the end, what it all means, probably. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> probably. <laughs> so here we see we're going to, the St. Peter bind them on the left-hand side and some of the same characters or symbols appear on that parchment as well. Next slide. Now, and that's the back bind evil doers from me, not doors, but doers. Yeah. And when you <laughs> fold it into quarters, all those bind evil doers from me overlap each other. There you are. Hmm. Every one of those would be right on top of themselves. Yeah. Yep. Just like those little things we made when we were kids. You know, they yeah, open yeah. up. Yeah. Have different little... <laughs> yeah. That was I could never make those. Thing. The girl, the girls, the girls in my class, did. they were great at making those. I was terrible. I could never make one to save my soul. It sucked to know that your fate was in the hands of that random chance of that thing. You know. Oh, absolutely. By the way, what's your favorite number, Bill? Uh, yeah, four. One, what's your two, three, four. <laughs> what's your favorite color? Yeah, blue. <laughs> okay, next next slide. That's St. Peter bind them, and it says St. Peter bind them, St. Peter bind them, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. May every hair of their head be as heavy as a millstone that desires to set fire or destroy this body. Uh, fail not, fail not, fail not. Those three fail nuts Always is not necessarily what it says, but catch catch them. Well, it might be a those. Next next slide. Yeah, like Bill was saying, and I think half facetiously. I mean, Pele Ale was repeated three times. Yeah, for magical yeah. incantatory effect. So this endowment. is a clo close up. Only of repeated that. twice. What said? Oh, geez. and then oh. repeated. <laughs> Twice. You can't yeah, say something out only the first time. Yeah, first time <laughs> you say it. Good point. Good point. I stand corrected. God is wrong. <laughs> so I, I put fail not, but it could easily be, if you look really close at the handwriting, Latin. Fiat. Uh, or fiat. Ayat, let it be. If it's one word. He will make a noise, which kind of makes sense with the remainder. Catch them. So I'm not sure. It's may, Maybe we'll find a document that has it, it written more clearly or something someday. Okay, next one. Here's the round one. Um, down, okay, so you get that. That's what we're going to talk about. Go to the next one. Can I just ask really quick the, the – yeah. The image next to it, is that just somebody trying to render what was on the original? Yes. Okay. That's Mark uh, Elwood looking at it real carefully, uh, a digital version, you know, blowing mm. it up. And, you we know, so many gifted people in the space. I love it. Trying to figure it out. Yeah. So that's a pretty close rendering. It's mm -hmm. there's a Latin words around the Im immediate inside of the circle, four, four Latin phrases, and then it's an English. Uh, spell going around and then there's a a, a pentagram and um a sun with a sun 
uh, symbol in the middle. And over here, we'll see it's a um, Jubla Days. Gesundheit. <laughs> I'm sorry, what did you say? A, um, Jubla Days? Yeah, Jubla it's, a, Jubla it's a symbol. <laughs> it's a Juban La Days. It's a symbol for uh, one of the angels. Okay. Oh, the bottom right. That really yeah, the intricate right. thing that looks like mousetrap game I had right. when I was a kid. Weird, weird thingy. Yeah, that game. I remember that. Um, hey Dan, Dan, I want to ask you this. Did you mention it? Or are you saving it about the fact that it looks like this document had soot on it at one point, And that's why somebody took turpentine to it or whatever yeah. cleansing agent, which... Yeah obliterated it which by and the way you already cross-referenced that with the instruction about putting it up the chimney if it doesn't yeah, work i i mentioned that okay i just want to make sure we emphasize that <laughs> yeah because if it is soot, it might be related somehow if it is soot, and if it was obtained by putting it up the chimney then it sounds like well are there holes punched in it poked pricked in it no that's the next question right there are holes but the holes occur at the folds Okay. Okay. So, okay, next. Okay, the one on the left is a similar one found in Utah, Bountiful Utah in the 1880s. Found? Well, it was above the door frame of the home of, um, I had his name here, um, Her, you know, Harrison or... So this is on the inside of the house. Is this a parchment or is it actually painted on the it's wall? It's a parchment. So it's a parchment that was put above the door on the interior of the house? This is from this is from um, Quinn's book also. Had, had this picture in it. And, oh, James, Henry James Harrison, a bountiful Utah English convert who immigrated in the 1860s. And it was discovered in, in the 1880s above the door frame in the Bountiful home, his Bountiful home in Bountiful, Utah. So what's the point in putting it above the door frame? Okay, so that's to uh, ward off evil spirits. So it's like the idea of having an inverted horseshoe over your door frame to keep evil people or evil spirits from entering. Um. A charm to drive away spirits that haunt any house. Hmm. What is it it says around the circle? Is that English? Okay, go to the next one. Well, there's a Juban Lades. See, so there's on the, on the right, a Scott and Sibley. They have those symbols. And there it is, right on that parchment. Okay. Okay, that, go once again. That's a is that an angel? That's an angel named Juban Ladeis. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. And it had well. I think I, I. Let's see. And here's a description of that symbol. Oh, that's the meaning. That's the meaning of if you want to know. If you want, we won't read this, but if you Flaming want to know, sword. Yeah, Juban Ladez, distinguished sword. in the dominion of thrones, 
As the appointed guardian are. of all public and national enterprises where the good of society and the honor of God are unitedly concerned, he is delineated in all the brightness of a celestial messenger bearing a flaming sword girded about the loins with a helmet on his head. And this is the magical character by which he is distinguished and which is worn by many as a lamin or layman round the neck for a preservative against putrid infection and sudden death. Now, some people have found that interesting in light of Alvin. And the Alvin's putrid death. infection part? Yeah. The calomel? That, yeah, so there might be a, a connection to that. Well, it didn't work very well for Alvin. <laughs> okay, so let's go to the next one. You guys don't think that's strange that you have a messenger with a flaming sword there, huh? Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> right, right in the same sentence next to the loins. Celestial loins, yeah. <laughs> Bearing a flaming sword girded about the loins. Yeah. With mm. a helmet on yeah. his head. Just parallelomania. More mode. <laughs> okay, so here's those the Latin phrases that are around the immediate next immediately uh, around the circle okay the you other parts mean in, yeah they're phrases that come out of the bible actually uh-huh so i i the next slide might tell you what the phrases mean in latin there you are latin translation and the scripture of each of those well there's three phrases Actually, not four. They divided them wrong. But there they are. So Psalms, the translation of the Latin Luke, is, Every spirit praises the Lord. From Psalm yeah. 150, verse 6. The second is, They have Moses and the prophets. From Luke 16 and 29. Mm -hmm. Sounds like something from a parable of Lazarus and a rich man, maybe. And God will arise and his enemies be scattered. Is the translation of the third Latin phrase, which is from Psalm 68, verse 1. Thanks. Yeah, that's it. So that's the Latin phrase around that. Okay, go to the next thing. We'll see the English part. This is the text that goes around it. Under God's gracious mercy and protection, we now commit thee, Lord, bless thee, and keep thee, the Lord, make his face to shine upon thee, and be gracious unto thee, and Lord lift up his countenance upon thee, and give thee peace both now and forevermore. Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. <laughs> could you pronounce that with an English accent, Dan? I can't. I, I've tried when I was in England, and I could never do it. <laughs> I tried as hard as I could, but I could never get it out. And amen, amen, amen. So you can do it. Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. <laughs> that's exactly, that's Monty Python. I was just telling my wife, this roast lamb is good enough for Jehovah. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't say Jehovah. <laughs> this is where you get stoned. This is where you get stoned. Are there any women in the crowd? <laughs> so... So, no! Um, no, I mean, no, no, no. As it turns out, that if you go to the next slide, it's, it's right out of the English prayer book. 
Church right. of England and prayer I, I book. I hear that phrase like at funerals, but I'm sure it's used in other contexts. It's a very famous passage. It's like a from prayer. Yeah. So no big deal. No big deal. It's 18, that's 1824. So it's a, it's around and it's a you know very familiar prayer. Okay, go to the next one. Dagger time. Whoa! How many so dogs' our... throats do you think that cut? I, how many how well, many sheep and dog jugulars has that thing been across? I I think that might be one of the reasons because it has a brown handle too. But um, instead of a black and white ceremonial dagger. Mm -hmm. Um. So in the next slide, we'll we'll see that there's markings on the blade. Now that's a dagger. Where's mm, this dagger dag coming from, Dan? Dagger. They Where use it. What do you mean? It's um, in the co collection uh, with the parchments. Uh, it's oh, handed see. down from the Smith family. Okay. This is right there, Eldred G. Smith. And a lot of times they thought this was a Masonic <laughs> knife or something. But that's a, you can compare there to Barry 1801. The same symbol appears there for Mars, the seal of Mars. So that whole thing is the seal of Mars? Yep. Okay, and Mars is the god of war. Mars is the god of war, and not surprising that it would be on a weapon. Yes, right. Maybe to imbue it with greater power. Yeah, yeah. Well, Quinn argued that it was Joseph Smith Sr.'s birth sign, birth year sign, mm -hmm. because it, 17, uh, 1771 uh was the year of mars but hardly anybody knew the the year sign your actual year signs were determined by the hour you were born but um year these year signs 18 or, or i mean 1771 would be uh very hard to get that information first of all i can only find it in at in joe smith's day in a dutch book you know so uh more more likely barrett when barrett talks about etching a sword with this these signs he isn't he it's not determined by the birth year of the person doing the etching or using the weapon it's just a, a, a talisman to help anybody that's going to war or is in danger or wants more power <clears throat> with their weapon has it not it's not limited to people that had but was born in you know 1771 and every seven years after that do do we see a connection <laughs> between symbols used in masonry and the symbols used in magic. In other words, to posit that this was connected to masonry, I would want to see some overlap. And if not, then I would want. It would well, seem... they they were mistaken. They were just guessing. Right. Gotcha. So mm. yeah, this would essentially be because they knew Joe Smith was a mason, but they didn't yeah. know he was a magician too. He wasn't very good at either. <laughs> um. So next slide. On the other side are these symbols. Oh. 
So okay. there's a symbol of Mars and Scorpio. And uh, you see over there in Barrett's book, that symbol in red there is the intelligence of Mars symbol. Yes. And right below all of them is the, the Hebrew word for Adonai. Okay. So do you think that this might have been used for magical purposes, this dagger? Um, yeah. Um, Quinn thought it was, be, was used to draw magic circles. And, You'd have um, to get that on your hands and knees. and yeah, I mean, I it's a dagger, right? So that one picture that Bill showed had a, a sword, and it's usually you used a sword to do that or a wand, a long, a long wand okay. to draw these magic easier. circles. It's not unknown that they used knives to draw magic circles. Yeah, there mm -hmm. you are. So see that what you can see that sword right there, right in the middle. And it, yeah. And the word on it is at is written Agla. Remember the Agla on that shield. Yeah. So I call it an Agla sword, well, or an Agla knife. Even these are ceremonial sword and knife. This doesn't have Agla on it. This is not what you would expect for uh, it to a uh, dagger to be used and draw magic circles. You know, would Smith have understood so, that this was Hebrew? I mean, so no, no, again, I'm just throwing out lots of things that we can't prove or show, but it strikes me that if Joseph recognized that there was Hebrew connected to his magic, it might also prompt him to be interested in Hebrew, which he was in Kirtland, for instance. Yeah, well, these they thought um, Hebrew was the original language and uh, and a lot of this stuff in Barrett, especially, is coming from the Kabbalah, from Hebrew uh, magic, Hebrew magic, you know, uh, or the occult, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, so this not uh, this dagger though. What could it be used for? It could be used for protection if a person was seriously frightened uh, for his life and maybe carried something like this uh, to help him defend himself or possibly uh, I uh, asked Quinn if he uh, ever thought it could be used for animal sacrifice and he said to me well I didn't want to mention that because he had a he felt that he had enough trouble already trying to establish the magic connections to the Smiths and their money digging so I didn't want to bring that up in his book. Now, this is yeah, fascinating so. to me, this story that you talked to D. Michael Quinn about his book, Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. Yeah. And based on what he told you, it sounds to me like he was willing to censor himself to some degree in yeah. order to make his book less controversial. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny, huh? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, the footnotes in that book are as good as the book, you know? Yeah. So, uh, next slide. Okay. Oh, okay. This is Barrett talking about when when the seal and intelligence of Mars is engraven on an iron plate or sword, it makes a man potent in war and judgment and petitions and terrible to his enemies. 
the other one is Capricorn is the other sign is it gives it similar for security and so it's the kind of thing you would want to put on your weapon. So to me, it would might fall into a peer, uh, period in Joseph's life where where he needed protection. <laughs> That's a hint. Is that like every day. <laughs> That's a hint. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> but so okay, go to the next slide. And there we are. The animal sacrifice. There's the sheep and. Next to it is that quote from uh, William Stafford about a sheep being led around the circle bleeding. Um, and he just says uh, it was one of his sheep's, a sheep. And it was, he says that I believe this is the only time they ever made money digging a profitable business. <laughs> so can I read that, this, is that Can I Could read that this? dagger that okay? have been used? Huh? I was just going to read this entire quote, if that's okay oh, with you. Oh, if you want. I this is from Ever Ever Howe, Mormonism. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ever Howe, Mormonism Unveiled. And this is from an affidavit that was written by who, Stafford? William Stafford. And William lived Stafford about a what? mile south of the Smiths and participated in money digging on their property. So yes. he's an eyewitness. Okay, and this is what he said. That a black sheep should be taken onto the ground where the treasures were concealed. Okay, so this is part of the methodology of finding treasure, right? Yeah. That a black sheep should be taken onto the ground where the treasures were concealed. And, of course, you'd find out where they were by someone who had the gift of finding out where the treasures are buried, such as Joseph Smith with his seer stone. Then goes on. That after cutting its throat, it should be led around a circle while bleeding. This being done, the wrath of the evil spirit would be appeased. The treasures could then be obtained, and my share of them was to be fourfold. To gratify my curiosity, I let them have a large, fat sheep. They afterwards informed me that the sheep was killed pursuant to commandment. But as there was some mistake in the process, it did not have the desired effect. This, I believe, he concludes, is the only time they ever made money digging a profitable business and isn't he saying that the fact that he let one of his sheep into their hands that's how they actually got profitable yeah they got that's a the sheep <laughs> oh such a bad money digger oh my goodness <laughs> okay it's getting late uh, <laughs> the, jo the jokes just keep getting better from here folks yeah. all right well Go to the next thing. Okay, so there's that Jupiter sign that you were mentioning before. You can see over on the side, the shape of it a little bit better there. Um, mm -hmm. And it's large, and this is what Quinn thought. It, it was large, and it's it, than the other signs, larger than the other signs, and in a central place, a prominent position. He speculated that it was because of Joseph Smith being a Jupiter. And now he's on firmer ground here than he was with Mars. Um, mm -hmm. Because uh, Jupiter happens to be in Joseph Smith's birth sign in the one of the three decans of Capricorn. And he was a Capricorn. He was a Capricorn, December 23rd. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's three decans in each zodiac sign. 10 degrees of each 30 degrees. And he is 
he uh, is of the first decan is Jupiter in his sign. So he's, uh, and that was well known and discussed in all these books uh, that decans were significant. Um, and it more, it very easily found. I have like pictures of charts where it just charts out everything, everybody's decan and things like that. Not a difficult thing to find out. So he's on firmer ground when he makes that connection. So let's look at the next slide. Can we, before we go there, oh. one more question? I'm sorry. Bottom center, the, the winged um, symbol of either the second or the third angel. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, uh, Nalga. Above it. Nalga. Right. And the IHS above it, which we've talked about. Yeah. Over there to the left of IHS and above the left wing. Is that an Ankh in gold? Are you talking about the fertility sign of the Egyptians? Yeah. Or the eternal life sign. Yeah. Or or Venus. I don't know. Does Venus look like that? Yeah. Okay. So that's going to be Venus as opposed to an Ankh? Right. Okay. Okay. Can we let's go to the next sign? So this is that zodiac wheel I was talking about and shows Joseph Smith's uh, first decan of Capricorn, 22nd to the 31st of December, ruled by Jupiter, Joe Smith Jr. Here we mm. are. So there's actually a real hit there. That's really solid, isn't it? Yeah, if you find the that that symbol, the lar the larger nature of it and the positioning of it be significant, so that's a kind of a subjective judgment to make about that symbol. If mm -hmm. you see that as significant and it matches up, then you you do have kind of a a hit, if you want to call it that. Well, the reason mm -hmm. I mention that, of course, is because not only is that Jupiter sign in gold and rather large on the parchment, it also ends up showing up in the talisman. The Jupiter yeah, talisman. that's what we're going to look at next. So let's go to the... There we are. So that's the uh, Joe Smith Jupiter talisman. And this uh, Charles Biderman, the first guy at the top on the right... He's the son of Lewis Biderman, Emma Smith's second husband. And he's the one that was showing the um, Jupiter talisman around and say, telling people that uh, it was a piece of metal found in the pocket of the prophet when he was killed about the size of a dollar. It had, this is uh, Henry D. Moyle, that middle guy, picture the middle guy. This is Henry D. Moyle writing... Uh, about it, about his meeting with uh, Charles Biderman in um, 1902. Whether the the talisman was in Joseph's pocket or not, I'm not so sure. But um, it, it had like a, there's a hole drilled into the top, which would make it suitable yeah. for hanging about the neck. Right. Pendant. It doesn't mean it couldn't be in his pocket as well, but. Well, right. Um. Then uh, John Henry Smith, about the same time, talks about this uh, a metal said to have been carved by Joseph Smith with this inscription on it, confirms Odeus 
potentissimus, something like that. And that's the Latin phrase, which above was translated into English as, oh, God, make me all powerful and many. That Yes, that's pretty good memory. But uh, I show that late in the next slide or next one after that. I'm not sure. So go ahead. Oh, this is where the talisman ended up. Uh, Wilfred C. Wood bought that talisman from Chauncey uh, Biderman and put is it in his Wilford museum. Wood? Is this Wilford yeah. Wood related to the Wilford Wood who made the death mask of Joseph and Hiram? So uh, Wilford Wood that is was, the person who I fabricated Dibble. the death mask. Philo Dibble, I thought, um, made the death mask. Um, yeah, this is... There might have been other ones made from the Dibble ones. So it could be. I mean, they had them there in the museum. And that's the museum there in Bountiful, Utah. Part of it. There's another structure Same connected with it. I'm just going to throw it over here. So when we were there, we asked to look at it, it but they wouldn't show it to us. <laughs> So yeah, this is the same guy. So yes, yes, Dibble made the death mask, but Wilford Wood later on fabricates uh, a bunch of them. And in fact, a, a set of them ended up in Family Pond, uh, which mm. is why I know the name, which oh, is why it strikes me. But um, yeah, you guy. should go to his museum is amazing um, up there in Bountiful, Utah. But he he bought it. He bought a bunch of stuff. I mean, he's the same guy that... Um, is the same guy that did this just with begins oh his work. Oh my gosh, I recognize that. Yeah, he's the he's the same guy. Wilfred C. Wood. Right? That's where I found out shortly after my mission that the section in the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about Oliver Cowdery having the gift of Aaron was actually originally the gift of working with the rod. Yeah. In the eighteen thirty three Book of Commandments, which is replicated in that, correct? Yes. And he does in that same volume, the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants as well. And then he has another volume. It's the 1830 Book of Mormon. And that's what I got those when I was a teenager. So I'm sorry. I'm trying not to laugh out loud, not in derision, but in awe of you, Dan. <laughs> well, yes, thank I was you. studying trigonometry at the age of 11. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, not me. No. Okay, so that's where they're supposedly still there. Okay. But I and, didn't get confirmation because they wouldn't show it to me. And on the uh the <laughs> Jupiter talisman, the bottom part, those all all those signs relate to Jupiter. I yeah, see let's, the four there or the twenty-one. Let's go uh I have it mapped out. Okay, so that's the same talisman right out of Barrett's 1801 book. Okay. Except the the magic table is, is actual numbers. The on Joseph Smith's talisman, it's uh, Hebrew letters, but they all add up to uh, 34, no matter which way you try to add them up, and four times 34 is 136 which is the number at the bottom of that top part. Oh, if you were to turn one, it upside down. Yeah. Or so it's one, at least reverse. 136 is the magic number for Jupiter. Oh. Okay, so go to the next slide. I can see how if you got too deep into this, you could actually lose your mind. Yeah. 
And so these are the from Barrett, the sign of Jupiter, the um, intelligence of Jupiter, and what is it? The spirit of Jupiter. Okay, so next. There, there we got it all worked out. There's that confirmo o Dios potentissimus, something like that. So there's a seal, the sign of Jupiter, intelligence of Jupiter, and then there's that phrase around the outside. Next. Oh, so these are word, Hebrew words around the edges of the other side that match Barrett's Jupiter, right? One of the seven planets and those numbers and the holy, the holy, one holy name is Abba, which is four. Then there's El Ab, which is 34. That's the other magic number. Four times 34 is 136. Joe. Fiel, I guess, the intelligence of Jupiter. Okay. So you and see, El it's, they're playing with numbers there. Yeah, and El Ab would be Father God. That sounds right to me. Okay, go next. There's an. So you see here the El Ab, though, on the Joseph Smith talisman is missing a letter. And it looks like there's a space where it should be. Yeah. Because it's so, on the left. So there's always some reason why it never works. <laughs> I can see the flaw right there. If he had so, this on him at Carthage, this is why he did not get protected. <laughs> so there, and there's the other Hebrew words and the sign of Jupiter, that four shape looking thing. Yes. Okay, next. You can see why the idea of garments being magical, you know, this idea that magic protection and spells, and you can just see the church is trying to get away from all of that. But uh, on some level, magic is absolutely tied in knots to the beginning of Mormonism. Absolutely. And I would even go further and say it's tied in knots to the beginning of Christianity as well. Mm, yeah, totally. It's just there's so much about Christianity that we take for granted because it's repeated so much that we don't even think about this idea of there being power in the name of Jesus. That evil spirits can be thwarted and driven away by invoking the power in the name of Jesus. That we have sins that are washed from us through the power of his blood. Yeah. And if you can step back for a second and try and look at it as if you haven't been a Christian your whole life or haven't been exposed to Christianity your whole life, you can look at that and say, that sounds kind of magical. Yeah. Yeah. So that page from Barrett's book there explains what the Jupiter talisman's good for. <laughs> if this is engraven on a plate of silver with Jupiter being powerful and ruling in the heavens, it conduces to gain riches and favor, love, peace, and concord, and to appease enemies, and to confirm honors, dignities, and counsels. So, if you want that, you can wear it. <laughs> well, wouldn't anybody want that? I don't know. There's other talismans you could choose from. I guess so, but that seems pretty awesome. 
It's almost like you're asking, okay, if you could have a superpower, one superpower, what would it be? Riches. Oh, okay. I thought maybe turning invisible. Okay. Well, wait, can I just tell you something, Dan? Okay, this is yeah. a personal story. I used to. We be only have two more slides, everybody. Okay, so this is about turning invisible by magic. So when I'm a kid, I'm into these little magic books, and by magic, I mean like black magic. I have no idea. Really? Yes, but I'm not really reading them. But I'm I'm scanning one that's too thick for me to read, and I'm not interested that much. But I find a spell that has to do with turning invisible, and I thought that's the spell. Okay. None of this yeah. love crap. I'm like, you know, 10, 11 years old. I'm not interested in the love spells. I want to turn invisible. And they had a spell. And I remember this spell, which I never actually did because it was immediately impossible for me to do because the first thing you need is a dead guy. And this dead person has to have been buried. And having the coins over the eyes, right? Yeah. I don't remember everything about the spell, but I remember that it had to do with digging this person up, taking one of those coins off of his eyes, and then under... Maybe it was by the dark of the moon or some t certain time taking that coin and placing it under your tongue. Mm. And you would be rendered invisible. Hmm. So I thought it was a great idea, but I couldn't even get, you know, off first base yeah, on that one. Really? Well, it wasn't meant to be. No, no. So I've never <clears throat> turned invisible. At least not intentionally. You and Joseph Smith both thinking about digging up dead bodies, huh? And taking parts to to perform spells. Are you talking about Alvin's hand? Yeah. <laughs> There's been a lot of Beatles references tonight. There's Let It Be. Let that It Be. That was one of the, tra the things that you thought, Let It Be. Coins There's on the Eyes is George Harrison's song. That's what Obla I di, obla da. Life goes on, bra. And now you're talking about, I want to hold Text your man. Hand. Taxman. No, the, the George Harrison Taxman song in the Coins on the Eyes is a reference Boom. in there. Yeah. Anyway, so the last last slide, I think. Everything or, no, I know about Mormonism I learned from the Beatles. Dad, look, Alvin's hand. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and there's D. Michael Quinn. D. Michael Quinn. Yeah. What is this slide? Okay, well, this slide is about Mercury and that Raphael is attached to Mercury. And these are the five weeks in a year where Mercury presides. So Mike Quinn had this idea that it was uh, to in the, the holiness to the Lord parchment was to invoke or summon uh, good spirits. And uh, it would only be uh, usable when Mercury was in power because Raphael's name being in the center of that star in the center of the parchment. And these are the weeks. And so notice that the 12th through the 21st of September is included. And so he thought that that's when uh, Moroni came and appeared to Joe Smith on the 21st, the very last minute of Mercury's power. And, and it would be in 1823. And so he associated it with the 1823 appearance of the angel to Joseph Smith. And so I have challenged that because of the 
shield that we talked about being in the 1825 book is mm. one reason. Mm. Other reason is that I see the parchments as not a one-time thing that was only good for uh, this week. And uh, the last night he happens to have his appearance of the angel. And I see the parchment more as a protection against evil spirits. So I, if it's have to, if it has to be after 1825, I don't see it being attached to the uh, Josiah Stoll uh, episode because that's too soon after the publication of this book because that would be November, October, November of uh, 1825, you know, and that book came out towards the end of that year. And so I associate it more, the poss one possibility, okay, is the 1827 visit to the Hill when Joe Smith would want protection against the spirit being attacked by the spirit because the last time he had been there, which was uh, before 1824, the first time he went there, he got attacked. Yeah, he got clobbered. Yeah, supposedly. And uh, several rods. Right. And, and even in Oliver Cowdery's uh, version, he got shocked th and thrown back three times, you know. And it, which made him think of the enchantments that he heard so much about, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, I and also, up, I always mix up those trips to the hill. I can't really tell one year from the next. So I have to distinguish them by who he was supposed to take, right? Like mm -hmm. one year he's supposed to take Alvin, another year he's supposed to take Samuel Lawrence, another year he's supposed to take Emma. That's how I, that's. Anyway, we can move on. I'm... And I think Dan's of the opinion that um, several of those yearly visits were manufactured in hindsight. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's to connect the 1827 visit to the earlier visits as, as there was some kind of continuity between the first visit and the last visit. So I my opinion is that he went in 1823 and couldn't get the plates and the excuse he gave was he needs to bring alvin the next year and he and took alvin, his eyes off the plates right yeah take your eyes so, yeah so so yeah he did something wrong according to magic lore if you do something wrong and you don't follow the instructions precisely it won't work but so he he tell he has to go the next year, 1824, and and I believe he came home and said, I was supposed to bring Alvin, but Alvin's dead, so I can't get the plates. And, then, and I didn't realize that till I got to the top of the hill. <laughs> well, yeah. Meanwhile, Dad's exhuming the body. So I think that might be his way of not giving up. Yeah. After his son gave him that excuse of why he couldn't get the plates. And I think that's where it ended. Right. Until 1827. Until 1827. It was over. It, it, he failed in getting this treasure like so many other treasures. That right. There wasn't coming back every year. So, so you think that he really didn't go there in September of 1825 and in September yeah, of 1826. No. But those were rewritten back into the story to give it some kind of reason that there's these three-year gaps yeah why that why a four-year why did you have to wait four years you know 
to just get to them. say it. Oh, go ahead. Just finish that thought, by the way. No, I'm done. Okay. Just to, just because it's a tangent, it's not meaningful to what we're talking about here, but just because it strikes me, I just want to connect the audience to the story that's kind of crazy along with these kind of trips to the hill is that Joseph Smith's child was supposed to translate the plates first. Yeah. 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 And that's then the, the kid was called, uh, born, stillborn or whatever, or Joseph Smith the third, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. But so there's all the these people crazy in the air going, well, the kid was your son was supposed to translate the plates and what happened? You know, they mocked him because of that. Because what God allowed you your son to, you have a look on your die. face. I'm not as familiar with this as you. I may have heard it once, but it's, it's striking me as new right now. Yeah. But if you, I mean, really, if you don't need to look at the plates to translate them, why do you have to have somebody who's alive to do the translating? Well, I think the idea is if you put the translation in the uh, uh, the act of a child, then mm-hmm. it looks that much more marvelous. Um, not that the kid would have had anything to do with it, but you produce suddenly these you know, pages of manuscript and you say the little guy back there did it. It sounds really magical. You just write them in crayon and you're ready to go. <laughs> <sighs> well, it would be a delay tactic uh, uh, mm. for one. But um, yes. so... Uh, also, association with the 1827 time period is Joseph Smith's former money-digging companions were trying to get the plates from him. And so that might be the context for the St. Peter bind them parchment right. uh, against thieves. And um, it would protect the plates against the, the money-diggers trying to take them from him. Plus, there's that worry about remember the trying to destroy his body, and that might give a context to the dagger. Trying to destroy whose body? Mm. Who the Saint Peter bind them? Right. Had that phrase in there about wanting wanting to burn and destroy this body. Mm, okay. Bind those who, you know, make their hair as heavy as a millstone and bind them from burning and trying to destroy this body. Dan, it's so point, that might be the context for the dagger. At some point around an hour or an hour and a half ago, you had mentioned some connection you were going to make in the future about the 116 pages. And I don't know if you've done that yet. No, I, I was going to make the connection to the dagger for protection okay and the thieves mm-hmm. when i was talking about thieves before and the black the soot and all that um so that's the context i think for the saint peter buying them parchment is the attempt to steal the plates from joseph smith that makes sense that's one possibility and we can't nail it down not not maybe is what quinn tried to do but mm-hmm. it's i mentioned to you yesterday that the more i look at this the more it reminds me of uh evangelical christians or christians of other stripes trying to make sense out of the book of revelation <laughs> yeah and everybody's all over the board on their interpretations but they're still trying to interpret the same passages. 
Well, you get into the realm of symbols, and so symbols are interchangeable mm-hmm. and fluid. It's a subjective interpretation. So, Dan, so what was one that connection more... you were going to make with 116 pages? No, there wasn't. But There wasn't? Well, so that would... Did you replay uh, the tape on that, Maven? So that would happen. The loss of the 116 pages would be um, July of 1828. I remember earlier you made a joke, RFM, about why didn't they use the lost item finding magic spell to find the 116 pages. Right. And that was in that context that I thought Dan said, oh, I'm going to make a point about that later on. Oh, I think he was I might, talking about might have misunderstood stood okay. what you were meaning. I was really looking forward to that, too. <laughs> well, you try it. <laughs> I think I did it. That that was my contribution an hour and a half ago. Okay. May right, you know the... one more. Please. One more. Kind of put a bow on it. This is kind of put it. a bow on it, like kind of thing. Uh let's see. Um maybe I have it here. I can read it easier from here. Let's see. Uh no sooner was it known that I had the plates than the most strenuous efforts exertions, I mean, were used to get them from me. Every stratagem that could be invented was resorted to for that purpose. For the persecution came more bitter and severe than before, and multitudes were on the alert continually to get them from me if possible. But by the wisdom of God, they remained in my hands. Perhaps the wisdom of God in doing everything in his power to keep them included these magic parchments. Interesting, because if that's so, then he'd be referring to the parchments as the wisdom of God. So that's why I'm talking to focusing on this period of when he went to the hill, he got them, they're trying to steal them. Then he takes off and he goes to um, Pennsylvania. This is all in um, 1827, and the loss of the 116 pages is like July of 1827, you know. Bill has put up magic. A, a meme on the board for your benefit, yeah. Dan. It was just, it's magic. It says, I'm it's not magic. saying it's magic, but it's magic. Yeah. Ledger domain. <laughs> Sleight of hand. The faculty of Abrac. <laughs> okay, that's my presentation. Is anybody still here? Bravo. There are 337 hardy souls who are still with us. Wow. And that's about as many Browns fans as there are in the country, too. (laughs) Well, we do. We do have a few callers on the line. Uh, Oh, wow. I'll I'll put one more caller in the bank if somebody wants to call. They've probably been holding forever. Sorry. No, no, no no biggie. So let's do this. uh, I hope it was worth it. Yeah. So we've got, it's like Walt maybe is the first caller. Walt, are you there? Uh, so my question is, just out of curiosity, whether any of these characters or symbols on these parchments are similar to those in the on the characters sheet that Joseph Smith prepared. I know that they're been connecting them to 
letters and numbers in the English alphabet, but we've been doing that with these symbols tonight too. Like, you know, the Jupiter looks like a four, etc. So just curiosity if there's any connection there. I didn't find any. I tried, but I couldn't find anything that was significant. The, the Anton characters is what he's talking about? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When we're talking about different alphabets and making mm -hmm. up letters. Yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't find any that matched. I tried, but. Thank you, Walt. Nothing so important. So you're saying yeah. the Anton manuscript is really Reformed Egyptian, Dan? Well, what's right. Reformed Egyptian? Right. Hey. Don't turn that question hey back on me. <laughs> is this, is this well, Molly? It's like regular Egyptian, just reformed. This is, is this Molly? This is Gazela Mali. Oh, God. Mali. It, it dictated that different. Go ahead, my friend. The son of Muhammad Ali. Oh. Yeah, that's right. Hey, you know, <laughs> that's what's funny about that. Is last, last time I called in, you had a different name for me, too, so it must have come through really weird. Yeah, it's, was it Raphael? Uh, yeah, Gazela Mali is from the Order of Amman. Jubilee Lodish. Sort of true and living... True and living Mormons. I've met Dan before. I was showing him my um, my Mormon magic, reformed Egyptian that I did with the. I've been messing around with it, but I was calling in because of the high German fortune teller book. Um, I have been able to take take that and find um, parallels to the reformed Egyptian, which is really interesting. But it's it's cool that you found that with. Um, those characters that were actually um, typographically yeah. um, the letters that were put into that book, because that means somewhere there's a handwritten characters that don't you think there has to be hand characters, handwritten characters somewhere and some grimoire that that was copied out of. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think the actual spell had those characters. It, it had characters that the, typesetter probably couldn't reproduce and so he used substitutes yeah yeah but whoever did the holiness to the lord parchment seems to have copied the printed one and and didn't have access to what the original ones whatever they are look like and and there are other spells where they did similar things yeah. but they used different characters substitute characters in different spells okay, so in that same in that same book Oh, that's so cool. That's what I love about this stuff because um, they're really just memes or a game of telephone or Chinese whispers or something, you know. Um, like that Jupiter talisman is a perfect example where you can see the the line is broken in, in one of the characters. And so we can we can tell what book that was probably taken of because it was a misprint in the book and then was carried on over to that um, talisman or amulet. So... A really great episode. It's been really enjoying it, and um, it's a great extension to what you were doing a couple days ago there, Dan. I really enjoy it. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Gaslam. Cool. Take care, guys. Thank you so much for thanks calling. Thanks for calling. All right. And then the final call of the night, uh, Tim, <laughs> you're there. Hey, Dan. All I got to say is kudos, man. What? You blew my mind tonight. Is this Tim Rathbone? Art. I hope Art will... This yes, is Tim is, Rathbone, isn't it? 
Yes, it is. <laughs> you cracked him like a nut, Dan. You have blown you my his mind, voice. man. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! You, <laughs> thank you, up, man. <laughs> You're gonna. Blow yeah, man, are, you, away. are you sure it was just <laughs> me that blew your mind? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, Tim. Tim. Without any help. Are you there, Tim? <laughs> Yes, yeah, I'm here. Okay, I hate to break into this yeah. mutual admiration society, but <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed the show. What was it you found the most mind blowing? Uh, every moment. <laughs> the, okay, the, the Albin, when you get Albin, <laughs> that too, that too. Uh, <laughs> well, you've tied so many things together that aren't and me and others have struggled to pull together. The stuff in the megas, but what about the fifth book of Moses? Have you looked in there for any symbols or anything? Well, I've, I've gone through, uh, you're talking about the, like the fifth and sixth books of Moses kind of thing. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I've, I've gone through a lot of stuff, especially on, on, um, the esoterica.com site has all this stuff on it. So, okay. I'm going to look that yeah. up right now. Well, let's see. Joseph Art, Peters Ohio, well, called uh, erotica.com. What is it? Did you uh, say erotica.com? Hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sign out of that one. Yeah. Well, just bookmark just <laughs> it first. You guys. I, I forget what he calls it. He has a weird name for uh, uh, the sixth book of Moses. Yeah, six, fifth, and sixth. I know yeah. about the fifth. I've never fifth heard of the sixth. Moses. <laughs> or, yeah, they're um, they're Jewish magic books. Yeah. Oh. It's uh, fascinating. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, um, some of these entities that these guys ran into must. Well, they actually do admit that they inhale uh, smoke that is like laced with drugs <laughs> in some of these magic ceremonies, you know. Okay. Hmm. Uh, I know Bryce Blankenagle and a couple of yeah. other guys done quite a bit of work on trying to posit that in early Mormonism that Joseph Smith is using psychedelics and conscious altering tools in order to get people to have spiritual experiences. And uh, the, the evidence isn't very, I wouldn't call it concrete at all, but uh, you know, there's, there are some connections there that are at least plausible. Well, I don't find it very persuasive, but the uh, esoteric uh, kind of people, the, the occultists uh, actually talk about doing it you know, in their circles. And that's, and then having these, summoning these spirits that, that come. And some of these guys are under the influence mm -hmm. of, yeah. like the, of breathing it in. Thank you, Tim. Tim, glad you liked tonight's well, show. On. Thanks for calling in. Did you have anything else well, you wanted to say? Okay, look, may, may, may I say one more thing? Art de Hoyos did find the source for the um, Anton Manuscript characters. Who did? He did find it. Who? Art de Hoyos. Art de Hoyos? Art de Hoyos. 
Is that the Central America I people know, with the sort of label? No, no, he's the Masonic uh, scholar. He's the archive. He's the grand archivist of the Masons back in Washington D.C. Can Can you send me a link to that? Like, if you're and being uh, serious, I'd like to. Uh, I am skeptical. Well, I'm on. skeptical, Tim. What are you talking about? You mean a, a, a moment? Um, scattered. Oh, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. He, yeah, he, he found the story magic for some text. of the characters on the action. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've, seen, I've seen it. It's just yeah. as valid as uh, comparing it to English. Gotcha. So parallelomania. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it's possible that these, this book, and I don't remember the title of it. I used to have a copy of it, but sadly on my system lost. But um, he did find the source for the character. And we published a paper on it, but I can't find my copy and his got lost. So. I know he sent some to a bunch of people, so maybe somebody out there in the ether has got a copy of it. If and then do, there's also, well, I, ha I have something I, I think you're talking also, about. Do you have Robert Smith, Oracles, Talisman, and Tana Sophia about Joseph Smith? Remember when he published that back in 86 or 87? You might want to look at that too. Who? Bob Smith, the guy that worked for Farm. Oh, Robert Bob Smith? Smith or Robert Smith. Yeah. Yeah, the one that worked for Farm. Yeah. What was the name of the article? Um, oh, that yeah. Robert Smith. Yeah. It, it's a it's a book. He published like 200 pages on Oracle, Talisman, and Tana Sophia with Joseph Smith. Um, and then there's thing by, oh, I can't remember his name. Anyway, there's a lot of other stuff. I just want to congratulate you. I mean, oh, thank you. I got to get at your book. I got to get your book. <laughs> I yeah, to, get it. I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call Art in the morning, and we're gonna talk about this. <laughs> I mean, this you just blew me away. <laughs> you tied so many things together that we've often wondered about, you know. And now you hit the nail on the head, and you're just gonna blow a bit out of the water. I just. I can't wait to see react. Did you did you see did you see the video, Tim? On YouTube, my my presentation of the whole thing. Well, I, yeah, I watched you on Carrie on Sunday night. Well, I wasn't yeah. home, but I watched it yesterday, and then I watched you your presentation. Yeah, but you went into go, a lot more go, detail tonight. Yeah, go to my um, channel, uh, Early Mormonism Explained. Okay. And there's a new video there called Joseph Smith, the Necromancer. Yeah, I and, watched it yesterday. Oh, great. Yeah, but you have, you some, you explained some things tonight that you didn't explain in there. I mean, it, that blew my mind away, but you did it more tonight with some other things that you added. But anyway, I just want to congratulate you. Man. Well, Go thank to, you very are much. Are you going to do anything at MHA? No, I won't be going. I won't. I won't be going anywhere this year. I'll be uh, making the circuit next year, though. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I just. I can't congratulate you enough, my friend. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Okay. I'm gonna let you go, my friend. Thank Thanks you very going. much. Okay. Bye. You've got some big fans. Well, how does that there, make Dan you feel? <laughs> to be adulated, so. Uh, 
Well, uh, you know, it's better than being ignored. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, I really appreciate people's interest. I, I, it's a subject I, of course, love to study, and I've studied uh, all my life. And um, uh, I want to communicate it as much as I can to other people. And things I found all the time I spent trying to dig up this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of climb up this high mountain and you're the higher you get the more you can see and then and you want to share it so i i'm really happy to be able to be on your show to be able to do that well it is our honor to have you on our show and congratulations again on this incredible accomplishment of getting this book published i can only imagine how many hours and hundreds of hours and thousands of hours of work and research that this book represents on your part, Mr. Vogel. Yes, that 10,000 hour rule. Yeah. If you want to be good at something, you have to spend 10,000 hours to get good at whatever it is. Uh, What's that? I said, that's right, Jacob Hansen. Yeah. So (laughs) that's it. Where did Jacob Hansen come from? Just just that 10,000 hours needs to be spent before you assume you understand Mormonism even moderately well. Oh, is it that's a to lot three of hours, hours he's put into it? Yeah, it's a lot of hours. Jacob. Yeah, it's a lot well, of hours. Well, you know that old story about, you know, the violinist, uh, you know, the prodigy guy, and somebody says, uh, I'd give my life to play like that. And he goes, I did. Ooh, wow. Slap me upside the head. I thought you were going to go with the guy who's looking for directions in New York City and says, hey, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? I thought we were going to tell the joke about the 10-inch pianist. Oh, my gosh. Just a little guy who played the piano. I can't even believe that you're even going there. It's getting late, man. Did you hear the one about the streaker in church? You're blowing Tim's mind. They caught him by the organ. (laughs) All right. Oh, uh, wow. let's, let's wrap this up. <laughs> Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. Uh, all right. You guys have an awesome night, and uh, I guess we'll call it, huh? <laughs> Thank you again, Dan, for being here tonight. Sure. Thanks for inviting yeah. me. And thank you, Bill, for doing such a great job <laughs> with all the slides. No, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing the Brady Bunch opening with only half the kids. <laughs> I tell my wife that roast lamb was good enough for Jehovah.